All right. Let's fire it up. So we're going to today we're going to talk about the B101. Uh, the B101 is a document that you guys will be using lots and lots for the course of your careers if you stay in architecture. If you become a lawyer like me, you see it every day. Um, this document, uh, I think I said earlier in one of my earlier lectures, AIA is, these documents, these form documents are probably used in 70% of all the construction projects um, in the industry. Uh, and this is the main document between the owner and architects. Um, the, if, if you remember, I'm not sure if we've talked about this, so there are a series of suites of documents that the American Institute of Architects puts out. There's the A series. The A series are owner contractor side and contractor subcontractor. The B series is the owner architect side. And then the C series deals with consultants and other things, and then there's an E and an F. I don't know where the, what happened to the D series, but but principally we're going to be dealing with today is we're in the B series owner architect. Now within that B series, there's the 101, there's a 102, a 103, a 104, and, and various divisions of that. The the numbers uh, relate to the size of the project. So the 101 kind of covers everything. It covers projects anywhere from um, if you're going to do a home addition up to uh, a project that is in the hundreds of millions. In fact, I just negotiated a uh, B101 for a project that's going to be about a $350 million project. So it, it has a huge expanse and it can do a lot of things. It's the most flexible of all the documents. Um, there is one called the 103, and the 103 is designed for large-scale projects. Um, so I debated on this big project whether I was going to use the 101 or the 103. I opted for the 101 because there are some specific um, pricing and, and how who's responsible for cost estimating and some other elements of how the project is priced out. Not, not how much the architect charges, but how the project is actually costed out that is more applicable to the 103. Um, I also have two projects right now that are using the 104. Those are smaller contained projects. Um, that don't have a, a large scope. So the one, the, the one project I'm using for the 104 is uh, for a, um, a high-rise in Chicago that they're doing um, tuck pointing and resurfacing the skin of the building. So the building's been in existence. they got to do tuck pointing, seal coating, fixing the, the windows. So it's a very limited and narrow scope. It's only going to be one contractor. It's not multiple trades, and there's no plumbing. There's no electrical. It's just so that's something that the 104 would use. But the B-104 is for your average architect that does everything under the sun. And so what we're going to do today is I'm literally going to walk through each provision. There are a few provisions in the actual document that aren't on the slides and because they're irrelevant, um, you know, like uh, very minor stuff that, isn't, uh, that, that doesn't impose a legal obligation or isn't um, important to how the architect inter relates with the owner or the contractor. But I'm going to walk through these. And I'm going to explain to you, and, and if anybody flipped through any of the slides, some of the provisions have highlights or uh, the bold and italics. Those are the, when you're going back and looking for the exam, those are the areas, and I'll try to emphasize them when I'm talking about them, that might be on the exam. So you'll see something, and, and it, it is because it's the important language in the very specific provision. Uh, I'm going to go fast today because it's a long document. We will not get through this entire set of slides. The goal is, I can't remember if I get through Article 5 or Article 6. Um, I think I get through Article 5, and then we'll finish everything up 
uh, next week. Um, and then the, it'll be the same kind of exercise. Where's my phone? So I can keep saying. Uh, it's the same exercise we'll do when we do the 102. So um, without further ado, let's start in. Okay, so Article 1, and, and um, there are a few changes, and I'm going to tell this for some people because uh, in addition to you guys um, teaching, a lot of people listen to these lectures when they study for the exams. And I highly recommend, because the one, the, these suites of documents, they were, came out in 2017, they're going to be around until 2027. The AIA revises its documents every 10 years. So presuming that any of you take your AREs before 2027, and actually they go, the AA uses them for another 18 months, so into 2028, your exams will be based on this document. So have enjoy it for today and for your midterm, and then five years from now, or whenever you guys decide to sit for your AREs, come back, find these lectures. A lot of people listen to my lectures online because this is exactly what they test on. So there may be a few times where I'm going to talk about what was in the 2007, because there's some people that are, haven't taken the exam that have been practicing for a while, that used to work under the 2007s, now they're working on the 2017, so I may point out this is a difference in the document. For purposes of the exam, you don't need to worry. I'm not going to ask any questions. What was in the 07s versus the 17s? I'm just kind of doing this a little bit for my other audience that listens to. So, first, the reason why I said first out of the box, Article 1, Initial Information. So they used to have, the B101 used to have a separate document that was Exhibit A. And in Exhibit A was some of the information in Article 1, and that included like uh, where the project site was, the description of the project, who the parties were, you know, a little bit more about the owner, a little bit more about the contractor. The AA said, well, that just doesn't make sense. Why do we have it in a separate document? Let's just put it all in here. So the initial information has all been rolled into one. So it's pretty simple. You know, the owner's program for the project, that's a description of the project. What we're going to do is we're going to be building a 15-story condo building, and that's going to be a description of that. Project's physical characteristics, so you're going to describe. So these are, in, in Article 1, Section 1.1.2 and 1.1.3, it's just your basics about what the project is. What is it? What's its physical characteristic? And what's its budget? Real simple stuff. Um, so this, and things like this, don't worry about this is going to be examined. A lot of the stuff, if there are going to be questions about that might be examined, I'm going to try to highlight for you guys today in the class, but I still want to walk through so everybody understands how this document functions. Purpose of these types of things is just so the parties kind of know the lay of the land. I'm, de I'm designing this type of building. I know what my budget is. 1.1.4, um, the anticipated design and construction milestone dates. So the owner wants to know, and sort of the architect and ultimately the contractor, want to know how long it's going to take and what are these key milestone dates. So it's going to define, you have a design phase, you have a construction commencement, substantial completion, and any other milestone dates. So the, architect, the contract says to you, owner and architect, I want you to start thinking about this right out of the box. And that's very helpful for planning. If you think about it, most people that build buildings, other than your own residential house, and, and even if you have a house, you want to know when you're going to move in, but most buildings are being built for a commercial purpose. And so the owner wants to know, when's my factory coming online? When am I going to be able to start leasing out units, you know, for my strip mall? When can I start selling my condo units? So that owner is carrying a construction loan so they can pay the architect and pay the contractor. They want to know when they can start making money off the building. So these dates, how long are you going to take the design and when are you going to give me these important points of design? When does the contractor actually start? Because I've got one type of construction loan from my architect and I've got to amp it up and I've got to get a whole lot more funds from my contractor. So these are important dates. And it's in this agreement, like most things in the agreements, the parties may know, 
But if you have it written down, it forces everybody to start really thinking about it and helps the architect plan, helps the owner plan. Um, the owner intends, 1.1.5, the owner intends to follow the following procurement and delivery method. Procurement and delivery method means how am I going to pay for it? And what is the type of, um, as a delivery method, is it going to be fast track versus your traditional linear design bid build? So if you think about a traditional project is owner hires an architect, they design the project, and the drawings are get to, completed to about 90 to 100% complete. Then they send it out to bid. Then they get the bid, they figure out who's going to be the contractor, they award the contract, then they build. Very linear, design, bid, build. Fast track, you start doing design, and you start, the, the architect continues to work on design, but they finish, say, the foundations and the structural seal and the early stuff. And the owner says, okay, that's finished, and give me kind of your idea for the rest of the building. I'm going to go out to bid earlier, and we're going to have a little bit later, there'll be a lecture in the second half of the semester showing how these delivery methods are, but there's an overlap. So the project, the span, design to build is long. If you have a fast track, design build or design can CM at risk, it's a shorter period of time. That gets the owner's project up and running. It also is cost less. Time is money. If you have a project that lasts three years and you can make it 16 months or 18 months, it's going to be cheaper for the owner. So that's what this concept of here is procurement and delivery method is how am I going to be delivering it to the end? Fast track, design to build, what are you going to do? Um, 1.1.6. The owner's anticipated sustainable objective for the project. This is new in this one, but it, it actually has been a genesis and been building up over the course of time. Sustainable objective is the AIA recognizing that green is good. And so what they decided in previous examples of the or previous versions of the document, they talked about that the architect shall uh, investigate and use sustainable methods in design and, and things like this. Now what they're saying is, is the owner, not just the architect, has the obligation to think about green design, of which many times the owner doesn't want to pay the extra cost for. Here, this contract now says under 1.1.6, I want the owner to think about it. Now, I will tell you this. I would say less than 10% of my owners keep this provision in here because they know one of two things. A, it's going to be more expensive because green building is more expensive. In the long run, green building probably is cheaper for a building if you do it properly. The operational cost for a green building should be cheaper, but the owners don't want to spend the money on the upfront construction costs. Number two, most owners don't really understand what this means, and so they're going to have to pay someone to help them figure out what is my sustainable objective? But what I try to tell my clients is, guys, it's really simple. Just say you want to be lead. And lead, do you guys know what lead is? Okay. So lead has all these parameters. Now, you have to pay a cost for filing lead and, and getting the certification, but that's as easy as it could be for sustainable objectives. So it's something I'm trying to educate my clients to, um, but it's good because the AIA is saying, owner, I want you to think about it, not just the architect. We're going to have you think about the sustainable objective. So then there's some subsets to 1.1.6. So if the owner identifies a sustainable objective, the owner and the architect shall complete and incorporate document E204, Sustainable Objective Projects Exhibit, into the contract, essentially, is what this says in 1.1.1.1.6.1. 1. 
and the owner and architect shall incorporate the completed E-204 into the agreements with the consultants and the contractors. So here's what they say, because the AA is trying to make it easy for them. They're going to say, we created this document called the E-204. It's a brand new form. That's what it says, 2017 on it. And in that form, it's got all these things for the architect and the owner to fill out. Whether it's lead, if it's lead, do they want to have lead silver, lead gold, lead bronze, what do they want to do? If there are other elements about this, and so they create together, they work together, and they create a plan. And that becomes part of the contract. And that puts obligations, as we've talked about earlier, contract puts obligations on parties. Both parties now have an obligation to satisfy with whatever's in the plan. And it's kind of nice. It's kind of like a shopping list. It's not regimented. You don't have to pick everything. But you, you should, if you do opt for this, you pick some stuff and you have a sustainable objective and you have a sustainable project plan. It's now an exhibit to the contract and everybody knows the rules to the game. And then the second part that's important in this paragraph 1161 is it says, once owner and architect, they're the first two people talking in a project. Once they figure out the plan, Everybody downstream, if the architect hires an electrical engineer or mechanical engineer, that architect's going to take that E204 exhibit and give it to them. Here's the owner of my plan. You need to follow it. Owner's going to do the same thing. They're going to take that owner's going to take that E204 and they're going to give it to the contractor. And then, interestingly enough, there is a separate form that the owner and the contractor fill out because there's some additional obligations that the contractor has that are not related to the design, but for their purchasing. Maybe where they buy the stuff from, how they buy the stuff. You know, so you want the owner may, a good green owner, may then start um, looking to the contractor to, to have specific vendors to use because they have a higher green rating. So there's some elements to that. But the point is, is there's this new chunk that's in this document, the sustainable project ex- objective, um, that's, that's going to create this this um, cascade of, of items that are going to happen. First owner and architect, then architect and its consultants, then owner and contractor, if owner hires anybody else. And it keeps the flow of this sustainable building from beginning to end. So that's what we're going to talk about. That's all what 116 is for. Um, any questions on that? Good. 117, uh, owner identifies the following representative. Who's my, who's my main point person? So each party is going to have the main point person. That's the owner's rep. Um, 118, the persons or entities in addition to the owner's representatives who are required to review the architect's submittals. So I have a project right now where it's a massive project. And the design, the owner retained a specialty engineer for this project to develop what we call, um, it's called the basis of design. It is not the plans and specs. It is a performance specification. You're going to build this type of building with these types of rooms and these types of systems. And these rooms and these systems must operate in these certain ways. There's no floor plans. There's no electricals. There's nothing. It's just this 500-page document called a basis of design that is a roadmap. We give that to the design professional that the owner's hiring. And they are going to take that big 500-page roadmap and create plans and specifications from which the building will be built. 118 here says, in addition to the, when the, when the plans and specs come back from the architect, because the architect's going to draw something up, 
give it to the owner. Do you like my layout? Do you like my volumetrics? And then it's going to get more detailed. Do you like the floor plans? Do you like how the construction? All those have to be approved as you work through a project. Owner always approves those. This one, 118, says, who else besides the owner is going to be looking at the architect's drawings? In this case, it's our specialty engineer that we hired that created the 500-page documents because they have the technology. They have the subject matter experts. So what the AIA has said, and again, this was all in the previous Exhibit A, but in 118 it says, hey, architect, not only is the owner going to be looking at your drawings, but these other people will as well. Just so, you know, it's kind of a good check and balance on behalf of the owner. Right, and that, that person is hired by the owner? Yes, person? yes. See, it, would be, it would be persons or entities in addition to the owner's representative who are required to review the submittals to the owner. So the owner is going to retain someone. In our contract, it's called the owner's technical advisor. We've actually created a definition. Sometimes it's owner's consultant. Sometimes you actually identify the specific entity. You know, um, McGuire Engineering or something to that effect. You may, you may say their name. But, but, but the entity that's being referenced in 118 is the owner's person that's double-checking what the architect is doing. Okay? 119. Now, one of the things when we're going to get into in Article 2, when we start talking about the divisions of, of, of who does what, um, there is a traditional division of labor of what the architect normally does and what the owner normally does. So the architect is going to bring an electrical engineer, they're going to bring a structural engineer, they're going to bring a mechanical engineer. They're not going to bring the geotech engineer. That's the person that goes out and figures out what the state of the soil is. The soil borings finds out if it's silty soil or clay or rock. And that's all going to be done, and that's who the owner's responsible for. And that's traditional. And I've had owners that have come to me and say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Have the architect hire all that. But traditionally, the owner is going to have retained the, the geotech. Traditionally, the owner is going to hire directly the civil engineer. Civil engineer is the entity that's going to do sewers, street layouts, the flow of the land. So if you kind of think about it, how you understand or where's this division of labor of the design entities, because geotech and, and civil are, are engineers. Where's the split? Think of it this way. Owner owns the physical land. The architect's going to design a building on top of it. Anything that has to do with the physical land, the owner's traditionally going to hire that. Geotech, what's in that soil? Civil, how do I make the streets flow and the hills go and the drainage? That's the owner because they own the land. Architect, building the building on top, is going to hire every type of engineer that needs to build the building. Structural engineer so it doesn't fall down. Electrical so there's lights. Mechanical so there's plumbing and heating events. That's a good separation. If it has to do with the ground and the land, owner. It has to do with the building, architect. That's who hires that. So this says, hey, 119, I'm going to identify who my specific engineers are. Here are their names. That's a real simple. Architect, 11.10. Architect, same way as the owner. Here's my representative. Here's my point person. Most of the time, it's going to be their project manager. Now, the reason why you have a specific representative for the architect and earlier for the owner is because you want to make sure there's only one voice speaking on behalf of the entities. Not in the project site. There's a project manager for the architect. That architect, that's the guy or the woman who is the representative for the architect. 
It's a Thursday. They send an associate. The associate's wandering around site, and he says, oh, we need to change this. That individual doesn't have the authority to do so. The contractor should know that that associate that says we need to change that doesn't have the right to do that. Let's say, the, let's say the, this associate tells the contractor, no, you need to move the wall from here to there. Contractor says, okay, and he moves it. Sends a bill to me, the owner. There was a $2,000 charge because the architect told me to move the wall from here to there. I go back to my project manager and said, what, why do we, we do this? And she says, well, I didn't authorize it. There's an associate that did that. I don't have to pay the contractor technically because my agreement with the contractor says you can only listen to the owner's rep or the architect's representative. So there's some important things. Same thing on the other side. Owner has a project representative. That individual, her name and who she's going to be and what she speaks on behalf of the owner. And if somebody else is on the project on the project site for the owner and authorizes this to the architect, oh sure, we'll pay you for that. The owner can say no, because the only person that has the authority to do that is the owner's representative. That's why you have it in the contract for both entities. There'll be similar language in the A201 between the owner and the contractor. Contractor identifies the representative. It's a legal thing, but it, it, it is important so you know who is the point person. Okay. 1.1.11. Same with the owner identifying their consultant, consulting engineers. The architects identify them. So we have structural, mechanical, and electrical. That's what I was talking about. They're the people that create the building. So that's who they're going to identify. Real simple in the, in the agreement. Just fill in the blanks who you're going to retain. Some architects will do their own work internally, in-house. Most of them, though, for bigger buildings, for divisional labor and everything, they're going to hire an outside architect or outside engineer for structural, mechanical, and electrical. Any questions on the division of parties? Uh, in-house, so um, there's going to be, like, if I work for MWorks Architect, and we have a bunch of architectural designers, I may also have on my staff an electrical engineer. They don't do architecture, they just do electrical engineering. They work for me, so they are in-house. They work, that's what the term in-house means, they work inside that company. So, um, 1111.2, consultants retained under supplemental services. There may be sometimes this concept of supplemental services. In the agreement, there's basic services, there's additional services, and supplemental services. That's what the architect is providing. Supplemental services may be something more after the project has started that the owner wants the architect to do. For example... Beginning of the project, they figured everything out, and the owner says, I want to be lead-like. I want that you design me a building that feels like lead, but I don't want to spend the $50,000 of paperwork to get a lead silver certification. So design it so if we ever filled the paperwork out, we'd probably get lead silver. But I don't want to spend the money for the paperwork because I hear it's administrative hassle. And the, architect, and the contractor's written up like that. Boom. Sign the contract. Everybody knows how much they're going to pay. Somewhere down the line, the owner's like, hmm, no, actually, I want to do lead. I actually want to file for lead. So they would write a change order to the contract, like changing the terms, and this would be a supplemental service. 
the architect here may have to go out and find a lead specialist. Maybe they don't have a lead specialist on their staff. So that's who this would be. They would identify here. And sometimes you know up front, sometimes you know later. So this would be anybody that's hired for supplemental services. And there's a whole list. We'll get there in the agreement of what are considered supplemental services. Um, and then any other information is uh, 1112. So just fill in the blanks if there's anything else anybody needs to know about parties. Okay. 1.2. The owner and the architect may rely on the initial information. Both parties, however, recognize the initial information may materially change. And in that the event, the owner and the architect shall appropriately adjust the architect's services, schedule for the services, and the architect's compensation. So, one of the elements in the initial information is the program. I want you to design me a three-bedroom, two-bath house. That's the program. And I want you to deliver it to me, design, bid, build. And then you go back to the architect and say, we already signed in the dotted line. That's the initial information everybody can rely on. That's what we're dealing with. And then the owner comes back and says, you know what? I still want that three-bedroom, two-bath house, but I want to fast-track it now. I don't want to have it design, bid, build, because we have some stuff going on. We're getting out of our lease, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of the 18-month process, I need to be in the house in 12-month process. The initial information has changed. That's what this says. It can change. Architect says, i got to work faster now. Compensation needs to be changed too. So this provision just tells everybody, yes, we have this block under 1.1. Here are the rules to the game. Here's what we're going to do. But if anything changes, 1.2 says we get to be compensated for it. Everybody has to understand that if you change it, something's going to happen down the line. Pretty simple. And one of the things you want to think about, and what I try to do in, in these contracts and when I break them down, is to say, what they're saying is actually pretty simple. The problem is, and, and, and since you guys are looking at this on the slide, when you, when you look at that, have any of you guys ever seen this as it's printed out, this actual B101 document, anybody? Okay, it's teeny tiny 10.5. It's really hard to read. I've been working on one of these documents the last couple of nights, and like last night I was working until about 2 o'clock in the morning. My eyes were like screaming because it's so tiny. And so what happens is, and I do this for a living, I know what I'm reading. The average person starts reading these countries and they're like, ah, I can't see what it says. I don't understand. Turn the page. Where does it say how much you get paid? But the reality is that they're all pretty simple. I mean, this provision, yes, there's a lot of words up there, but here's what it says. If something changes, I may get paid more or the schedule may change, and we all understand that. So that's what I'm trying to do, is break these provisions down into the basics of what they mean. So, all right. 1.3. The party shall agree upon the protocols governing the transmission and use of the instruments of service. Now, that's a lot of legal leads. Here's what this says. Instruments of services. That's your drawings and specifications. And there's a definition later on. If you look at it, see the I and the S are capitalized. So as I talked about earlier, in contract drafting, if you see a term that uses normal words like instruments or service or any word contract or agreement where there's a capital letter that's capitalized, that means somewhere in the body of that agreement that term has been defined. And the parameters of that definition have legal impetus. So, instruments of service, translation, plans and specifications. Could be models, pictures, everything else, but basically plans and specs. 
parties shall agree upon the protocols of governing the transmission and use. How am I going to get you my drawings? Electronically? Paper? By wagon? You know, that's what the protocols of governing the transmission. How am I going to get you my drawings and specs? That's all that says. If it's a digital form, you use this thing called the AAA E203. That form talks about the rules that parties must follow in transmitting electronic documents. One of the most important rules is it basically says everybody agrees that sometimes when you transmit something digitally, there could be a digital screw-up. And you cannot 100% rely on that, but we're doing our best. You guys work all on electronic documents. You know, how, you know how to do layering, right? You, do, you guys do layers and stuff like that? Okay. So when you're sending out something on CAD and you got all these layers and you send a big package, honest to God, sometimes some of the layers don't come through for whatever reason. The E203 talks about protocols of what you need to do to deal with that. So all this is saying is parties are going to understand we're going to be transferring digitally and here are the rules of how to transfer digitally. And something goes wrong, this is what we need to do. That's what 1.3 says. Okay? 1.31. Any use or reliance on all our portion of the building information model, building information model is also called BIM, BIM is the process out there, um, that agree to work without, without agreement to the protocols and reliance on the information contained in here, shall be using or relying on their sole risk and without liability in the other party, the contractors and consultants. So what this says, 1.3.1 says, hey, under 1.3, we all agree what the rules are of transmitting documents. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to follow these steps. We're going to try to make sure that documents are electronically transmitted properly. 1.31 says, if you, follow, if you fail to follow the rules, it's your problem. If everybody decided to set of rules and one entity the electrical engineer decides to do something different and it goes awry, don't come calling back to me and saying that there was a problem with the documents. If they didn't follow the protocols established in, in the E203 document, it's at their own risk. This was not in earlier provisions because there was lots of litigation that happened when everybody decided on the protocols and then the protocols were fired, followed. And so it ended up that there was lawsuits. Lawsuits said, um, so one party said, well, I was following the protocols, they weren't. So why should I be liable? And the courts came down pretty consistently with logic. If you didn't follow the rules, you got to carry it at your own risk. The AIA, in seeing that history of litigation, said, why don't we just stick that same provision in the document? Let's just add a provision now that says, buyer beware. That's what that says there. Lots of provisions in how this document grows every 10 years is based on Problems that have occurred between the 07 and the 17, or the 97 from the 07. During that 10-year period of history, the guys at the AIA, the people that other, the other entities that are working to create these documents, try to take what's real in the industry and fold it into the document. 1.3.1 is one of those circumstances. Okay? Any questions on that? All right. That's it for the initial information and how the parties are going to, who they are, how they're going to pay for it, what the project is, and how they're going to talk. That's what initial information is in Article 1. Article 2, architect's responsibility. So we're going to have a section, Article 2, on architect's responsibilities. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead.
The test is all multiple choice. There's going to be nothing on the test in Article 1. Just so you know. So, what, like I said, I'll, I'll try to point out when there's some things that are important, but I have no questions on Article 1 in the exam. I just want you to understand how these documents work. Because you will be using these documents soon. You know, you're going to get out, you're going to start working. You may not be seeing contracts, but you're going to be... What's going to happen is you're going to be working for a firm, and they're going to, and your boss is going to say, get those documents to the, to the mechanical engineer. And you're going to be like, okay, I've got to send them. I've got to send them. I'm going to send them an electronic set. Got to make sure that you got to say, well, do we have a, a digital protocol to follow? Those are some things you want to think about. So, I'm, so you know, I, I try to, the class, hopefully, you know, I, there's, I'm going to try to question you guys in the exam on stuff so you, so you learn, but, but things like today is, is as much as anything is how to understand a real-world document that you guys are going to be using soon. So, so it's not as much like the, the definition, the questions won't be as much like questions? Yes. All right, so here's what's going to happen in the exam. There's going to be a question that'll say, um, looking at the B101, there's going to be a whole, first of all, in the exam, there's going to be a point that says basically from here on in, it's the B101. And for the exam, I'd say at least half of the exam is on this document, just so you know. There's about 40 some questions, maybe between 18 to 22 questions are going to be on the B101. So you're going to, in the body of the question, it says, pursuant to the B101, if the owner did X, and there, there may be, there may be a, a basic simple, if the owner does X, which one are you going to do, A, B, C, or D? Or it could be an actual example. You know, every once in a while I'll throw out an example. Here's a project that I did, and here's what happened. So they'll say, owner and architect enter into a contract. They agree to this, this, and this. Using the B101, which is the project delivery method? Or which is, you know, who has the obligation to do this? Um, you know, so that's, that's going to be, there's, you know, the architect uh, has designs and the owner has paid for the architect to do the services. Who owns the copyright? That type of stuff will be in that. So, and then there'll be an ABC. There are, and in the 40 some odd questions, there's probably four or five true and false. So the rest of them are just ABCD. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. All right. Article 2, architect's responsibility. So now we're going to talk about what the architect has the obligations, and then we'll talk about the owner's obligations. First, the architect shall provide professional services as set forth in this agreement. Real simple. I'm an architect. This, this whole document tells you, owner, what I'm going to do. Shall provide. The term shall is really important in contracts. It means you must do it. It's not a may. Or sometimes you're going to see may in a document. It's shall. Professional services. They are a profession. They're licensed. They're going to provide these professional services. Architect then represents it's properly licensed. I got my little license I'm holding out, and I'm in a um, uh, licensed standing state. In the jurisdiction where the project is located, to provide the services required by the agreement. And to make sure they're licensed where you're going to be building, so they can actually be permitted and everything else. That's, that's all it says. I'm licensed. I'm going to be professional, and the license of the project can go forward. 2.2. This is the standard of care language. This is going to be the most, one of the most important provisions that you guys have to deal with for the rest of your career. Standard of care is what, you, what architects are contractually and legally obligated to perform to. We've talked a little bit about it before. But I, and I'll talk about it the whole semester, but um, 
We could never write a contract that says the architect's going to do this type of detail and this type of drawing and this type of plan and this type of section because the contract would be massive. I mean, right now the contract I'm working on is 485 pages, but it's for a $700 million project. But you have to figure out how do we encapsulate what the architect does every day for a living without writing every single thing they do out for a living. And they came up with this concept called standard care. The architect shall perform its services consistent with the professional skill and care ordinarily provided by architects practicing in the same or similar locality under the same or similar circumstances. The architect shall perform its services as expeditiously and consistent with such professional service and care, skill and care, and in the ordinarily pro orderly progress of the project. So there's a couple things I want to unpack in this so you guys understand this, how they look at whether you have performed in the standard of care. And if there's a lawsuit and the building has fallen down or something's gone wrong or there's a budget bust or whatever else, the other side who's injured is going to look at this provision. Consistent with professional skill and care, not just the average Joe's skill and care. So you are going to be held to a standard of a bunch of other architects. Or if you're an engineer, because this same language you'll, see, you'll find in an engineer's agreement, mechanical engineer is going to be held to the same standard of other mechanical engineers. Not architects, not civil engineers, the same standard as similar mechanical engineers. Next, ordinarily provided by architects practicing in the same or similar locality. Ordinary. You're not the best architect, it's not the highest. So you're going to be with everybody else that's just the average architect. So while it's professional, so you've raised yourself up against the person walking on the street, because you're professional, it's what every other ordinary professional architect is doing at that time. Now, sometimes I negotiate. Right now we're working on trying to get highest instead of ordinary into one of my agreements. The architect will give that, but I have to pay more because they're carrying more risk. But that's important. Next. Provided by architects practicing in the same or similar locality. You don't have to do your designs like you're designing it in California where there's a fault line. Same or similar locality. You design what a designer is going to be where the project is located. In the same or similar circumstances. Now this is kind of, kind of broader, this point here, the similar circumstances. That's a house versus a restaurant versus an office building versus a hospital. So it will be the type of project. That's one element that falls under circumstances. The other element that falls under the circumstances is, is it going to be a fast track? Is it going to be design, bid, build? What are the pressures and parameters that you're under? So this is your legal obligation. There's a lot of gray of what that means. But there's also an industry understanding of what it means. And you need to perform to that standard of care. And this will be running through and it's a contractual obligation you have throughout your contract and what you're performing. So any questions on that concept and, and the different elements of what's in the standard of care? Okay, great. 2.3. The architectural representative, identified representative and authorized to act on behalf of the architect with respect to the project. So this is a repeat. They have this authorization in 1.1, who the person is, the point person. And this is, again, they're going to identify who you're, the specific representative, and they're authorized to act on behalf. 
2.4. Except with the owner's knowledge and consent, the architect shall not engage in any activity or accept any employment, interest, or contribution that would reasonably appear to compromise the architect's professional judgment. It's kind of a weird provision because it really has nothing to do with what you're doing. It's not about how we're going to design. It's not about your standard of care. But this came in over the years because sometimes, you know, Maybe you're getting, maybe the architect is, takes some money under the table from the contractor to look the other way. Maybe there's other issues that are going on. So what this basically is, is this creates, without saying it, it creates what we would call a fiduciary responsibility. You have an obligation, fiduciary, which is financial, but you also have an obligation to the owner. And you cannot compromise your professional judgment. Even in this instance here, one could argue that the architect, if there's something like a directive of the owner to look away at that code violation, the architect really can't do that here because it has you cannot compromise your professional judgment. So this is this kind of, again, there's a fiduciary relationship, there's a moral turpitude clause. This is, you have to be a good person and you owe a duty of loyalty to the project. So um, Now, there's this one part here that's except for the owner's knowledge and consent, what you sometimes find is that if the owner gives the architect a directive maybe to go off book and do something a little different that you, you hopefully doesn't compromise your professional judgment, but there are times when if the owner tells the architect it's okay on that price point or it's okay on this, the architect can maybe deviate a little bit because the owner now, based on this, the, the exculpatory clause in the beginning of it, the owner now owns, owns the problem as opposed to the architect. But basically what you want to do under two fours is you want to be consistent with who you are, how you're supposed to practice the standard of care, and to the project in the owner. Does that mean that consent stays on like a bigger project at that same time? So it depends on what the relationship and what you've communicated. So a lot of times what I put in my agreement is, is I'm going to have language in there that says the architect shall identify for us the project team. And attached are the key project members. Architects shall not rotate or have the key project members leave and go on another project without the express written consent from the owner, of which approval will not be unreasonably withheld, or something to that effect. Basically saying, don't, don't steal the A-team. Because the, architect, the owner comes in and interviews and gets this great architectural firm and this great design team and really happy with it. And then if the and I'm paying a commission of $100,000 to your design team for the services. The next client comes down the road and says to the boss, I want three people from that A team and I'm going to double their payment. Well, of course the owner, the architect, the principal of the firm is going to want the more money so he or she will try to pull those people off the project. This is trying to stop that. Now, again, I'll add language in that, that emphasizes that and makes it even more clear. You are not allowed to do that unless you, you architect, are not allowed to, to divide up the A-team unless you come to me first. But that's what this is trying to do. So, in answer to your question, yeah, this could be enough to say you're not allowed to take another project. Um, now, you've got to remember also, most architects are going to be working on multiple projects at multiple times. Um, you're rarely going to have a full-time architect on a full-time project. Uh, because of the cost involved. So it's not to say that if you hire, if I hire you for a commission and a $100,000 commission, you can't have six of those running at the same time. You just have to show that you're managing and you have this kind of duty or loyalty to the project and the parties. 
2.5. The architect shall maintain the following insurance and termination until the termination of the agreement. And then we're just going to quickly zip through this because we talked a little bit about insurance um, last class. But basically what they did was, uh, this was another change a little bit. They kind of beefed up the insurance requirements. The AIA has always had not bad insurance language, but not the greatest. So they, they kind of emphasized it a little bit more. But this is basically because if I'm an owner, I want to make sure whoever I hire, not only the A team, but they have insurance. Because if the building falls down, maybe that firm doesn't have a lot of capital. And I would rather have the big insurance company to get my money back than necessarily the, the architecture firm. So, it just basically says here, you're going to have this type of insurance. 251 is commercial general liability. That's if, um, it has nothing to do with the design work. That's if somebody's coming to visit your office and they slip and fall on the doorstep. Um, that's commercial general liability. This insurance is more important for the contractor than for the architect. So, but you have to carry that commercial general liability. You have to carry automobile liability. We've always talked about the you're going to the project site and you deviate and you go to Target. Well, you want to make sure at least when they're driving to the project site, there's an auto liability policy that the architect's carrying, not the individual. Uh, an umbrella, 2.53 is an excess or umbrella. Sometimes the value of the project requires more insurance than what the architect would traditionally carry. Pretty common nowadays, the architect's going to carry, um, you know, for, for an auto liability, million dollar policy, uh, the commercial general liability, million dollar policy. The owner may say, I want five million for each. So instead of buying a different auto policy, they buy what's called an umbrella. Just a layer on top of it. Just more protection. Workers' comp. You know, anybody that works for you, if they get injured on the job, there's a certain type of... So that's mandated by law. That's why there's a statutory limit. Any business that has employees must have workers' comp. Employer's liability. This is if you get sick or injured on, or sick during the job, if there's disease or some other issues. That's another thing you have to have in Illinois. So it's pretty common. And then the most important for the architect is 2.56, professional liability. And that's covering your negligent acts, errors, and omissions. The professional liability policy covers your design services. Anything that you do in the performance of architecture, providing architectural services, is covered under the professional liability policy. So when you get sued, this is the carrier you call. You don't call your commercial general liability carrier, you call your professional liability carrier. And you may actually have two different insurance companies for those two. So this is the most important one. All of these, the, the, the blanks are all, they're all fill in the blanks as far as the, 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 the value of it, and that depends on the price of the project and lots of other exercises that the owner goes through to figure out, you know, this is a $3 million policy, a $10 million, a $25 million, whatever the values are. But this is your most important one, professional liability. Um, and then uh, 257 is any additional ones, like um, maybe your, um, oh no, this is additional, I'm sorry, additional obligations. So this is, let me see. Oh. So this one talks about if additional insured, um, and you don't worry about this for the exam, but there's a concept called additional insured, so think of it this way. Um, you have auto liability policy as the architect. I've hired you as the architect, I'm the owner. There's a bad car accident. Someone's killed. Plaintiff's attorney sues the architect because they had one of the individuals was driving. Plaintiff attorney is also going to sue me, the owner. Because that architect would not have been driving to my project site had it not been for my project. 
I don't want to have to call up my auto insurance company. I wasn't driving it. In fact, I don't want to have to call up any of my insurance companies because I had nothing to do with it. It doesn't mean, because we live in America, that I'm not going to get sued as an owner. So what I do is I tell the architect, put me as an additional owner, as an additional insured, so I basically can sit as the owner under the umbrella of their policy. So I get the benefits. Happens all the time. It's not very complicated. This is a very standard provision. But it's just to make sure that I, the owner, because I'm going to get sued, don't have to pay the bill, don't have to call my insurance company. I call their insurance company. So that's all 257 is. 258, architect provides certificates of insurance. It's just a piece of paper that says, remember all those types of insurance you asked for me in the last two pages? Professional liability, auto, CGL. Here's a piece of paper that says I actually got it. It's from the insurance company that says I placed these insurance. It's your uh, certificate that I'm okay. And we're going to go ahead with the project. If I'm an owner, I want to get this. Like, I had... Um, a kitchen renovation done a couple years ago. And it was just with a local contractor. I'm like, you're not coming on my project site until I get your COI, your certificate of insurance. So I want to make sure if one of your workers gets hurt or if you're you know, if somebody gets in a car accident on the way there or if you're carrying a beam and you hit the neighbor's kid with a big piece of wood, that the insurance is in place. Once you get me the COI, you come on in and start working. And it's, they just get it to you and send it back there. Real simple. Okay, any other questions on that? All right. Article 3, scope of the basic services. Now remember, there, there's basic, additional, and supplemental. So basic services is what every architect is going to provide no matter what for the project. And unless you strike it, there's some things you may strike out here. But this is the basic work. When I hire you as the architect, Article 3 is going to define what that scope of work is. This is what? I'm sorry? Yeah. Yep. Okay, first. 3.1. The architect's basic services consist of those described in this Article 3. Real simple. If it's in Article 3, i got to give it to you. And they are the, include the usual and customary structural mechanical electrical engineering. See, no civil, no geotech. It's just the usual and customary structural, mechanical, and electrical. Services not set forth in Article 3 are supplemental. So they're more than just the basic services, which you can ask for. And you get paid for but for your price of 100000 you're going to get Article 3. If you want anything in Article 4, the price goes up. Now, interestingly enough, and, and I say this in my lectures, and nobody from the AIA has ever told me this, but frankly, the way they structured this makes a lot of sense business-wise. Because at the end of the day, that's what you guys are out there. I mean, look, I love architecture. I love design. I love creating things. Truth be told, actually, like, um, this is a very complete off-ramp here. I play hockey. Very bad. But I get to design my team's jerseys. Last night, I sent out brand new jerseys for the team. It was so exciting because I love design. I love graphics. I love creating. I love drawing and everything else. That's why you guys, probably many of you guys are here. Because you love designing. 
But at the end of the day, architecture is a business, and so contracts are part of business. What I'm trying to teach you guys is, you got to think about it business-wise, too. Don't ever remove or, or drop your design passions, because I have fun designing my hockey jerseys. But, but at the end of the day, um, that's what these are for. So what the AIA did, at least the way I look at this contract, is they say, well, every architect is going to provide these usual customary civil mechan or mechanical, structural, electrical. Everybody has to do that. But when the owner starts asking me for a little bit more, they're going to say, well, isn't that what you normally do? If it's not in the contract, then maybe the owner says, well, I thought you were going to give that to me, and it's in the 100000 What the AA said is, no, we're going to create Article 4, and we'll get there in a minute. Article 4 has all the other stuff, and there's this long list. It's really cool, and it's like, check the box. And every time you check the box, the architect can say, more money. More money, more money. And that's okay, because it's a business. So by structuring the contract to split between what I normally am going to give you and what more, you're also telegraphing to the owner, it's okay for me to charge you more and don't expect me to give it to you free. It creates an understanding of the business relationship right away and it creates a way for you guys to generate income. I think it's, I think it's really nice. It's a really nice structure for it because it's not in your face. It's subtle, but that's the purpose. One of the purposes, which I think. Okay. 3-1. 3 one one I'm sorry. The architect shall manage the architectural services, research applicable design criteria, attend meetings, communicate with members of the project team, report on progress to the owners. This is what I'm just going to do. I'm going to make sure that I'm doing the project right, I'm talking to everybody, I'm going to the meetings, and I keep the owner informed. Pretty simple stuff. Common. But an obligation, because it says what's in Article 3 is what your basic services that you must perform. So you've got to go to meetings. You've got to keep the owner informed. But it's pretty simple. 3.1.2. The architect shall coordinate its services with those services provided by the owner and the owner's consultants. The architect shall be entitled to rely on and shall not be responsible for the accuracy, completeness, and the timeliness of the services and information furnished by the owner and his consultants. The architect shall provide proper notice that the architect becomes aware of any error omission or inconsistency with such services. So what does it say? Sometimes the owner's going to hire another designer. Maybe that geotech. Maybe that civil engineer. Or maybe it's a hotel and you've been hired to design the hotel and the owner wants a really cool upfront, front-of-the-house restaurant with an amazing kitchen, wood-burning fireplace and everything else and they know a specialty kitchen designer. So the owner's going to hire that specialty kitchen designer to come in and design this really cool space that the architect, when they're doing the plans for the hotel, basically leaves a big box in their plans. It's just a big square and it says, kitchen here, because they're not designing it. Owner's got a owner's consultant, the specialty kitchen designer in my example. What this provision says is the architect has to coordinate its work with the owner's consultant. So what's going to say is, when I'm doing my drawings, or when you guys are doing the drawings of the hotel, you draw that box, that's where the kitchen's going to go, but you also have to say, here's where the plumbing is going to be coming into this box, where the kitchen's going to go. Here's where the electrical is going to come in. Here's where the ventilation. The owner's consultant's actually also going to have to talk to the architect. I need the electrical to go here. I need the ventilation to go there. So there has to be this communication and coordination between the prime architect, you, and especially kitchen designer. 
That's what this says. You have to communicate. You must coordinate, the architect must coordinate its services with the owner and the owner's consultant. It also is not responsible. The architect, though, says, hey, I'll work with them, I'll coordinate them, but if they have an error in what goes inside that box, in my example, not my problem. I'm not designing it. I'm not responsible for the accuracy and completeness. So if when they start to build out the kitchen and something's missing, not my job. Unless, because you got to remember, when these documents are put together, the architect writes the first draft. The AIA writes the first draft of these contracts every 10 years. And then they give it to contractors and owners and subconsultants and lawyers. And the owner says, the entity that's representing the owner says, wait, 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 wait. I get it. If I hire that kitchen designer, you're not responsible for their designs. But what if you see something wrong with their drawings? Can you just say, hear no evil, see no evil, stay no evil? No, no, no. Let's stick another provision in here that says that the owner shall provide, the architect shall provide proper notice to the owner if the architect becomes aware of any error or omission. So if the architect, when they get the drawings in from the specialty kitchen designer, and they go to stick those drawings on their plans, they create another layer in their pad drawings, and they plot that kitchen into that box. The architect becomes aware of problems with the kitchen designer's uh, designs. The architect needs to tell the owner here. So the architect can say, not my problem, but I can't take a blind eye to it, so I've got to make sure. And that's, again, that, that duty of loyalty to the whole project. So let's coordinate, work together. I'm not responsible for your designs. But if I see something wrong, I've got to tell the owner. That's just the way it's going to work. It's going to be similar language in the kitchen designer's agreement. It's going to say, hey, I'm not responsible for the whole hotel. I'm just responsible for my kitchen design. But when I go to plug my stuff in, if I see your architect hasn't done this job owner, I'm going to tell you that your architect needs to fix those things. So it's reciprocal. Any questions on this? Great. 3.1.3. Oh, okay. So, 313 is a provision that talks about scheduling. Talks about here shall include the anticipated dates for the commencement of the construction for substantial completion, and then it talks about approval by the owner. So, think of it this way where 313 is. I come to you as the owner, and I hire you to build me a toy factory. I got to start selling my toys in August maybe September, to make my numbers for Christmas season. i got to hit it. So when I hire you 18 months before, I come to you and I tell you that. We want to go online August 1st because there's a ramp up. i got to train my employees. There may be some screw-ups in the machine lines. i got to have at least a month before September hits before i got to start going out on TV with my new Blinko doll or whatever it's called. You, architect, are going to design this facility for me. Can we make it in this time frame? And tell me the date. And I want to know when's going to be the commencement of construction. When? Because i got to go out and hire contractors sometime. You create a schedule for me. And your schedule tells me when you're going to design, when the construction starts, and substantial completion. Another one of these capitalized terms. That's a defined term. And, and uh, we'll talk about it more on the contractor side. But what substantial completion means here is that the project is fit 
for its intended use and purposes. That's what substantial completion means. Remember that. I don't remember if it's going to be a question on substantial completion on the B101. I think it's on the A201, so maybe second part. But that concept, substantial completion, is going to be important, excuse me, for the rest of your life in construction and architecture. So, for my, my toy factory, substantial completion means it's up and running and creating toys. Maybe not full throttle, maybe not perfect, but it's up and running and creating toys. Office building, I can start leasing out the spaces. A residential house, I can move into the house. It's fit for its intended use and purposes. So in the very, very beginning, when you sign this contract, you, the owner says to the architect, I need a schedule. How long does it take you for design? When's the contract going to start? And when's my building going to go online? When can you hand me the keys to the car? The owner's going to review it, and they're going to approve it. Once the owner's approved the time limit established in the schedule, it shall not, except a reasonable cause, be exceeded by the architect or the owner. As I will say many, many times in construction, time is money. So once the schedule is in place, you have to follow it. Both sides. If the architect is delayed on its designs, that means the contractor is delayed in performing its work. That means the guys that were showing up with the backhoes to dig a hole who were paid starting say, February 1st, but they can't start till March 1st, the owner has to pay those guys. That's a delay and that's a cost. Time is money. If that month delay is due to the architect's fault, the owner can sue the architect and say, I just had to write a check to a bunch of excavators for $40,000 because they sat there for a month with their backhoe. Because it says... They cannot deviate or exceed the schedule times. So schedules are really, really important in construction. Owner has the same obligation. Let's say it's a similar scenario. It's a month late for the drawings and the design, and the, the owner has to write a check to those excavators and comes to the architect and says, I need the $40,000 I just wrote because these excavators were sitting around for a month because your designs were supposed to be done February 1st, and I didn't get them until March 1st. And the architect looks back to the owner and says, remember back last September when you were supposed to give me these approvals and it was on the schedule, it says owner's approvals, and you didn't give them to me in September, you gave them to me in October? You delayed the project by a month, not me. Yes, my drawings didn't come till March, but your approvals were a month late, so I was stalled out. Don't come to me for the $40,000 because you also have to abide by my schedule. That's where I'm hired all the time, is who's responsible for scheduled delays. Probably one of the biggest areas of construction litigation is, is delays, scheduled delays and costs. So this just says, I'm going to create a schedule for you. Once it's approved, we all got to follow it, and everybody's responsible. Okay? Three one four. The architect shall not be responsible for an owner's directive or substantiation, substitution, or for the owner's acceptance of non-conforming work made or given without the architect's written approval. How does that come about? Well, once the project's under construction, the architect's going to go out there and they're going to look and they're going to tell that the contractor's following the plans and specs. You're drawing it, you're building it the way I do it. 
Nerka comes out and sees that something has been changed. It's not in accordance with the drawings. And they come to the contractor and they say, this isn't the way I drew it. The contractor says, yeah, but I was talking to the owner's rep and they said it was okay. Six months later, the wall falls down. Architect's not responsible for that because the owner directed the contractor to do that. This is a very good provision for architects. The architect didn't approve it and the owner gave a directive to someone else. Architect says, not my problem. Now, realistically, if you see an issue as the architect and you think there could be a problem, a structural problem from this directive and everything, if I was you, I would make sure that you tell the owner. I wouldn't necessarily say I've done an analysis and I think the building's going to fall down, but what I would say is you have given a directive that we do not agree with. And you can leave it at that. So you protect yourself even more. But the provision is pretty good for you. If the owner decides to do something that you don't agree with, not your problem. 315. The contract government authorities required to approve the construction documents. Architectural response, applicable design requirements. Okay, so basically 315 is about once you have your drawings done, you've got to submit them for permitting. Everybody knows that. Sometimes the building inspector comes back and says, well, you've got to change this, you've got to tweak this. And the architect has to change this. That's all this is saying. If a government authority tells me I have to change something, I've got to follow what they tell me. This is, again, one of those things that probably came out of litigation probably 50 years ago, 100 years ago, who knows. Because um, it's pretty logical. If you submit drawings for permit and the government says it needs to be different, it's pretty logical that you've got to fix it. But maybe there was a lawsuit where the architect said, well, I didn't quite understand what the government said, or I didn't agree with them, so I didn't necessarily breach my contract. Well, now the AA says, yes, you did, because you've got to follow what the government says. And the owner wants you to do that, too. Any questions on that? All right. 3.16. The architect shall assist the owner in, the, in connection with the owner's responsibility for filing documents and approval of government authorities. You're going to help them fill out the forms. You go, the architect knows who the people for submitting bill, for building permits and actually more the contract for building permits, but for design permits and things like that. That's part of your process. Most owners don't know that process. So this just basically says, as part of your, again, basic services, you don't get extra money for this, I'm going to help you fill out and file the forms. You've got to write the check for it, but I'm going to help you do that. This could also be if, like, for lead, you know, although lead is actually, I think, a supplemental service where you get additional payment, but if it's your traditional governmental permits, you're going to help them out as the architect. 3.2. So now we're going to get into the actual design process. Some of the 3.1 is more like some of the mechanics. 3.2, 3.3, 3.4, 3 3.5 are actual services that we have. So you have your basic um, uh, phases in a, in a design project. There's the schematic design phase. Then there's the design development phase. There's the construction document phase, fitting and negotiation, and then construction administration. You kind of take, like, if that's a whole pie, schematic design phase is about 10 or 15% of your time. Design development is, like, anywhere between 15 and 25, depending on how big and what's all involved. Then construction documents, somewhere around 40 to 45%. And that's also how you break up your billing and everything else. Bidding, maybe 5 to 10%. 
and then um, construction administration while the project's actually being performed, that may be another 15 to 25, depending on how you break out your services. Schematic, though, is up front. Volumetrics, initial, initial diagrams, initial plans, some rough elevations, not very detailed. So the owner gets a feel of what the building's going to look like. So it's your initial pre not pre-design, but initial design work. So um, what do you have to do under this schematic design phase? we got to look at the program. It's a strip mall with 15 different units. Um, you got to look at the laws and codes. Where are we building it? What are the codes for it? What do I have to do? Um, and then applicable to the architecture services. You're just kind of figuring out what are the parameters besides this 15 unit strip mall that I'm designing. I gotta fill in the blanks. 322. You're gonna prepare a preliminary evaluation of the owner's program, schedule, budget for the cost of the work, project size, procurement, delivery methods. So you're gonna to come to the owner and say, okay, I've done these strip malls before. And you wanna have it done, it's gonna take uh, 22 months. Um, the price is probably going to fall into this range. I can even break it up. I'm going to charge you this much for your SD phase, this much for your DD phase. So you can kind of get a cash flow. You know what's going on. Um, and I'm going to maybe even, I'm going to take a look at I'm going to maybe start doing sketches of it. So that's what this is talking about here. Uh, during that investigation, if you find out, you're going to notify many inconsistencies. By the way, did you know your property's two parcels and the one, the second parcel is only very small, but it's zoned industrial, not commercial. Did you know that? There's an inconsistency for your strip mall in this area. We have to figure out how to fix that. That's what you're doing under 322. Um, and then any other information that's reasonably needed for the project. Did you realize that there's a wetland here and that we're going to have to go do some EPA things? Do you know this is super fun? We've got to do some cleanup some stuff that the owner may not understand or know, you as the subject matter expert will understand and bring those to their attention. That's part of your schematic design phase obligations. That'll fall in here. Depends for, for this project, for this contract, that'll fall under the schematic design phase. Some contracts will create a pre-design phase. They'll add one more phase. I've had contracts where I've used the B101 and I create pre-design where they do a lot of that investigation too. So it just depends on, on how the owner wants to structure. It depends on a lot of things that are part of it. But, but the basic normal services that you're talking about, zoning and things like that, under this contract falls under schematic design phase. So in, in Oh, yeah. Are they billable? Yeah, for all of that. Yes. Okay. Most important thing is, is going back to the business side. Don't do anything for free. Tell them how much it's going to cost and charge them for it. That's how you're making a living. So, yeah, if you can do pre-design and do... Now, there may be times when you want to get a project, so you may do some pre-work pre because you're pitching the project. In fact, I have a project right now where I represent the owner. We're building this $350 million facility. I did a ton of work for them, not a ton. I probably did about 20 hours of work for them for free. They, they needed a couple memos, they want some ideas because I wanted the job and I had some other competition. They had another lawyer that was doing it and he didn't know what he was talking about. At least that's what I thought. Um, and so I wanted to show this client, not only do you need to hire me, 
but hiring me will get you better services and here's what I can deliver. And so I did some pre, pre-work, pre-legal work. I didn't do any contracts for them or anything else, but I gave them some opinion memos. I didn't charge you for that, but that was business marketing. But um, once they said, yes, we want to hire you, then I charge them for everything going forward because that's how we make a living. Same thing with you. Owners will always ask you for free stuff, though. Just remember that. It always happens. I still get it. I, in fact, the same client has asked me for, for free stuff two weeks ago. I'm like, no. But that's, you know, that's fine. Okay. Uh, three, two, three. The architect shall present a preliminary evaluation of the owner um, and shall, they will reach an understanding regarding the requirements of the project. So, you know, here's what I've done. Here's my investigation. Here's some ideas. That 15-unit strip mall. Here's some additional stuff. This is what I think. Is this what you want, owner? Oh, no, I wanted a little bit this, a little bit. You got to come to an understanding of what the what the what the program and the project is. You kind of feel out time. So that's what three two three. Three two four. Based on the project requirements agreed, because after three two three, you you actually have to come to some kind of agreement. Based on that agreement, the architect shall prepare and present for approval a preliminary design. Now you're doing scale and relationship of the project components. So it may be simply volumetrics. Some schematic design phase actually get a lot more detailed. Um, this big project that I have going out, uh, the $700 million project I'm working on right now, the owner that we're working with has a very has a 60-page book that describes what deliverables mean, what type of drawings they want for the schematic phase, what type of drawings and the detail of completion for the design development phase, and then obviously for the construction document phase, they have to be 100% complete and you can build off of them. The schematic design phase section is like 20 pages, and it's broken down in each discipline. Mechanical, electrical, IT, you know, uh, carpentry, all this stuff. It's extremely detailed. That is a high-level schematic design phase submission. If somebody's doing an addition for your house, they're going to do, the architect's going to do some sketches. They're going to say, okay, here's where your kitchen, here's your refrigerator's going to go, here's where your dishwasher's going to go. Uh, here's where the plugs are going to go, and it's just going to be a picture. So the, the, what this preliminary design means is very flexible depending on what the project is and what the owner's requirements are. That's why it's not detailed in here. It's, this is what 323 says. We're going to come to an understanding, and then with that understanding, the architect's going to deliver that set of preliminary designs. Question? So, interesting, that's a great question. The question is, is this, is this going to be different if you're competing for a project? Yes and no. What's going to happen? So, I do a lot of RFPs, requests for proposals. And that's effectively going out. That's the bidding portion of it. And, and I do it for the design side, and I do it for the contractor side. Um, um, and if it's for the architect, to get an architect. So, when we did Navy Pier, we, I did the RFP for Navy Pier. That started with, I think there were 54 different firms that submitted initial designs. Then we narrowed it down to a dozen, then we narrowed it down to five. At each level, the detail of information that we required from the, the designers got more and more. So the 54 people were like, here's who our team is, and here's some cool sketches, and here's some big ideas, 
and here's our background. And so it was a winnowing, much less on the design and more about who those entities were. Do they have the horses to do it? Are they financially aware of all? Do we even like that, you know, we, we didn't want to foster an associate there. We didn't want some mechanical thing in Navy Pierce. We needed the right design firm. But yes, as we got further down the line, the, the next phases of the RFP had a much more detailed level of information that was very much approaching schematic design level. Now, after we retained James Porterfield Architects, a lot of his stuff that, that they won the design with, we just tossed it out the window because we like, okay, we like this piece and this piece and this piece, that one's out, this piece we want to expand, but it was enough for them to win the bid. Um, and then we went through a new schematic design phase, but a lot of stuff was already done. So. Yes. Yes. I can't. So, um, I can probably tell you in about a month. Before the semester's over, I can tell you what the project is. I can do that. The reason why is because we, we, we just got approval um, from the government, and then we nothing's on the street, and I can't talk about it until things are on the street and the process starts going and, and everything else. But, um, but I will tell you what the project is eventually. Once it's public, then I can tell you. But it's not public yet. So... Be patient. It'll be before the semester's over. So, um, I can tell you the, the $350 million line, because that's actually kind of exciting. It's going to be up in uh, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin, and it's the new Gummy Bears factory. So I represent Haribo, the company that makes gummy bears, so, which is a really cool client. My kids love me, because every time, every time I go out to Haribo, which they're just out by Rosemont, every time I go, they're, they're U.S. headquarters. They're based out of Germany, actually. Um, but every time I go out to, to Haribo, um, when I leave, they give me these, like, I get, like, 15 bags of candy. So I come home, my wife hates me for the kids, but my my, my kids are like, are you going to Gummy Bears? Are you going to Gummy Bears? And I'm like, yeah. And then they, there's that Gummy Bear song, and they play it on, they have, they have Alexa play the Gummy Bear song, and they dance around. And they, so it's just, uh, they're, they're, they're eight and ten, so it's like the perfect age of doing the Gummy Bear dance. And, and then, uh, and, and actually, the other thing is, is and, and, because I got, I, 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 they'll give me, like I said, like 15 of the big bags. Um, and, I, and I can't give them all to my kids because they'll rot their teeth out. So I bring them to my hockey team as well. So if I get some extra, I have a meeting next week, I'll bring some into the class. Okay. So, yeah. so if I can bring, I'll see if I can get some. If I get some next week, I'll bring them in. So anyway, okay. Um, so three to four, right, let's move it on. Yeah, that's going to be exciting. Like I can't wait for that, that ribbon cutting for that one. Okay. Basically, there was a 325. Basically, there was approval of the preliminary design. The architect shall prepare schematic design documents. Now, as you see here, schematic design documents is capitalized. That's a defined term. And so sometimes there'll be a rider to this agreement, or like the 50 page document that I'm talking about with my $700 million facility, that defines exactly what is going to be in the schematic design documents, what exactly the deliverables are. Um, it has drawings, other documents, including site plan, preliminary building plan, sections, studies, etc., etc. So this is just the, the definition of what basic services are of schematic design documents. That's what this 325 says. Okay? Sometimes, again, the deliverables may be more, but at least you're going to be delivering this much information. By the way, I keep using the word deliverables. That's literally the drawings, the plans, and sections that you're delivering to the owner. That's a term you'll hear throughout your career. What are the deliverables? 
3251, the architect shall consider sustainable design alternates. So this was the language that used to be, or well, still is, and this was the trigger. It wasn't that whole part in Article 1 that we talked about where now we have a document, a sustainable project objective. It used to be just this, but it's an obligation. Shall consider, not shall design, but you've got to at least think about it, so you have to do it. And then the owner may obtain more advanced sustainable design services as a supplemental service. So here's, think about it, remember, basic services, electrical, mechanical, structural. You don't have to be sustained green architect. In fact, what this says, if you want to be more green, I'm going to think about it as the architect. I'm going to present those ideas to the owner. And if you want more, like lead or green globes or anything else, supplemental service, I can charge you more for that. That's good. It's a good communication between the owner and the contractor, or the owner and the architect. This isn't free, because i got to do a lot more work. If you want lead silver, yes, I have to design it that way, but I also have to fill out that paperwork. That means i got to hire someone to do that. That takes time. I'm going to charge you for it. It's not basic. It's a supplemental service. Okay? 3252, the architect shall consider the value of alternate materials, building systems, and equipment. And it's consistent with the owner's program schedule and budget. This is also sometimes called, the value of alternate materials sometimes we call value engineering. I can design this really cool truss system. It's very architectural. It's very visual. It's a really cool piece. And you may like that. That may be a signature element of the space. And then we start, and maybe that's why I won the bid. This cool structural truss, truss, truss system. And then you start building the project out and you start pricing it out and everything else and it's not within the budget. So now I've got to figure out a different type of structural system. I must value engineer it. So I have an obligation to consider different types of building systems. Now, that may be a cost saver, but I also may, because this is under the, you know, right after the sustainable design alternatives, maybe I think of a different uh, water filtration system. There's a building down the street from us that's... Um, Oh, is it a Jack Buck or Joan Lang LaSalle? I can't remember which building. But it's got their, their um, brown water uh, recycling system and everything. It's a high rise. It's, it's, it's amazing. The building got, I think, lead platinum. All the stuff that they use for the potable water and non potable water and everything else and the heat and the way that the building is done. Because they, they, they thought of alternate design systems. It's more expensive when they build it, but it ultimately is going to be cheaper for the operations of the building over the life of the 30 year building. And as owners get more sophisticated, as they recognize the value in the life of a building, um, a good architect can present to them, yes, this is more expensive to go in, but your cost savings will be incredible or amortized over the life of the building. That's a reason to think about it. And, and that creates a better dialogue between owner and architect for green and for sustainability and things like that. So it's important. Um, and, and as you get out and as you start working, there will be firms that are known for that. And if that's what you want to do, you go try to work for those firms because they have industry understanding that they're going to be able to design that type of space for you. And they, they, they win commissions simply because they know how to build a sustainable building. So it's pretty cool. Okay, moving on. 326. Now, the stuff here in blue is actually language from a provision later on in the agreement, Article 
But I wanted to put it here because it references it instead of having to flip back and forth in the contract and everything else because it's actually relevant language. So what's in blue is from 6.3. But it says, the architect shall submit to the owner an estimate of the cost of the work prepared in accordance with 6.3. So 6.3 defines the cost of the work. Cost of the work is very important. So there's a couple of provisions in these contracts that um, standard of care, very, very important to you. Substantial completion. That's a provision that is interchangeable with the owner's, con the architect agreement and the contractor agreement. Same language. Cost of the work is the same thing. You're going to find this definition, cost of the work, is going to be almost word for word in the owner contractor agreement. Because what it is, the cost of the owner to construct all the elements of the project designed or specified by the architect and shall include the contractor's general conditions, costs, and overheads profit. It's the physical cost of materials and labor to build the box. That's the cost of the work. So obviously, when the contractor bids the project, $2 million to build the box. That's your cost of the work owner. The owner says, okay, great, I can do it. It's in my budget. But long before that $2 million bid comes in from the contractor, the owner says to the architect, my budget's $2 million. Design me a building that's $2 million or less. I can't go over that. My cost of the work can't be more than $2 million. So as early as the schematic, when you're just doing sketches and volumetrics and figuring out where the things are going to fit in the box, without any of the details, you have to tell the owner, here is an estimate of the cost of the work. This is an obligation under this contract that you, architect, from the very beginning, are thinking about the budget and making sure that what you design is going to be within that budget. The gold-plated faucets are not going to be in the $2 million box. Maybe really cool, not in the budget. That's the type of thing you want to think about. And the contract says, i got to give you an estimate. I'm going to give you a deliverable at the end of my systematic phase. Here are my pretty drawings, and here's the cost of the work. We're okay. We're on track. And then 6.3 down here says, in preparing the estimates to work, the architect shall be permitted to include contingencies for the design bidding and price escalation. You know, you think it's going to be $2 million, but maybe it comes in at $2.1, maybe it's $2.2. Well, from when you designed it, when it went out the bid, there's some price fluctuations. Tariffs, who knows what's going to happen. I mean, I have so many negotiations over tariffs now because we don't know what those costs are going to be. But they're real, so you have to build it into the contract. The architect gets a little... So this language here gives you a little bit of fudge factor for the architect, so it doesn't have to be exact. Um, and then you got to figure out with the terminal materials, systems, etc., etc. So... 6.3 kind of tells the architect how they're going to do this budget, this cost of the work analysis. 6.1 is the definition for it, and the, the provision in this basic services, 3.2.6 says, after you've done these estimates analysis, you're going to deliver to the owner this preliminary cost of the work. Does all that make sense? Okay. I will tell you this. The trend in the industry today, especially by the large houses, you know, Perkins and Will or Denver or large architectural firms, is to strike this provision. 
Architects do not want to be held responsible for... It's not that they don't want to design within that $2 million budget. They will do that. They just don't want to be held responsible for when the bid comes back and it's at $2.7 million and the owner goes ballistic. Did the architect breach the contract? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe the architect actually did their best. Maybe they thought it was in $2 million. Maybe they, maybe what happened is, and this is, I mean, this is real. Uh, maybe China bought off all of the drywall and the copper and the silver and, and things that were happening. This really happens in this industry. There are buildings in New York City that, that back in 2008, 2007, that completely shut down because China was buying all of the building materials and they couldn't buy them. It just wasn't there. After some of the hurricanes that come down, um, that have come in, and, and this happens, there's these cyclical things. Drywall and plywood, not available for construction. And so if you're in a project and you're hitting schedules, and the architect designs that $2 million building, and the contractor goes out to bid and has to pay three times the market rate for drywall or plywood because what's happened to the mother nature, the architect doesn't want to be held responsible because it's been a budget bust. The bid comes back in at $2.5 million because the materials, for whatever reason, man-made or otherwise, are more expensive. And so the, the industry is kind of swinging to... Architects don't want to have the responsibility, so they completely strike this provision. They work with you. They try to budget, get it within the budget, but they don't like it. The, 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 the architect doesn't want to have the liability. As, a, as an entity, that, as a lawyer that represents owners, I push as hard as I can to get this. But I sometimes tell the owner, go out and, buy, go out and hire your own cost estimator. Get somebody else that can back check the architect. Make sure that you understand what these costs are. Um, because it's a lot of money. You know, when you're building a $350 million plant, it's expensive. You want to make sure that the architect's bids are, their estimates and analysis are right. Um, you don't want to have the project go out the bid, think you're going to be spending three fifty and it comes in at $400 million. You know, that's like a 15% increase, but it's $50 million. It's a lot. Okay, moving on. 327. The architect shall give a schematic design document. The owner requests the owner's approval. So at the end of all this stuff, here's your budget, here's your cost of work, and here are my designs. I need your approval. They ask for it. Until the owner says, I approve, they don't have to go to the next phase. You've got to get approval at the end of schematic design. Next phase, design development phase. Okay. Based on the owner's approval, so not before the approval, you're going to go into the preliminary design development. And this has, again, like the schematic under, uh, under 321, here on 331, is a definition of what is considered the schematic design. So it's a little more detailed. you got elevations, typical construction details, diagrammatic, diagrammatic layouts. So it's, a, it's more than schematic. It's, a, it's more fulsome. So the owner can start to see the guts of the building. They can really see what they're going to get. But it's just, this section runs the same way schematic. You're going to update the cost of the work. The one you did for schematic, you got now you have the price, you're going to update that cost of the work. Um, and then at the end of that, 333, after the end of doing all the design development documents, the architect is going to submit the DDDs, design development documents to the owner, advise the owner if there's any uptick or downtick in the cost of the work, 
and a request approval. Do my schematic, here's your stuff, approve, move forward. Do my design development, submit the drawings, request approval, move forward. Next phase, construction docking phase. Now we gotta, now we gotta take everything to design and we gotta, we gotta draw them up so they look like the contractor can actually build from them. This is the most of, of the phases, this takes the most time. Because you're taking pretty pictures and drawings and you're putting in details. So construction, doc, contract, construction documents, capital C, capital D, again, it's a contract term, it's a defined term, and here within bold is all of the information of what that is. Setting forth the detailed quality levels, the performance criteria, the materials and systems, et cetera, et cetera. How you build this. From this is what the project's gonna be bid. From this, they're gonna, the contractor's gonna be using it to actually build the facility. They're going to give it to their electricians, their plumbers, their HVAC system, uh, subcontractors, create shop drawings and build. Okay? You're going to incorporate design requirements to the government authorities, because now, like when you're doing DD and CD, or uh, SD, SD for schematic design and DD for design development, you don't have to have specific government codes in there, because it's pretty pictures. You want to make sure as you're designing, you're thinking about them, but it's not an obligation. Obviously, to build the building, you need to make sure you're in compliance with the governmental code. So that's why 342 says your design drawings must take into consideration those governmental authorities. 334, I'm sorry, 343, um, Dark Check Show, the owner in the development of preparation of procurement information, form of agreement. So also during this phase is making sure that, well, you're going to have to go out to a contractor. Um, we're going to figure out what the design de development method is. So the architect's going to help in bringing and identifying the contractors that will be bidding on the project as well. So that's an additional obligation. In addition to drawing the drawings, help them create the construction contracts. Or call me. Got to update the estimate of the cost of the work. 344 and 345, submit the construction documents, advise the owner of any adjustments, any reaction required, and request owner's approval. Now, if you've got this $2 million project that you've been designing and you're keeping the owner informed at the end of the schematic design phase, you're like, we're at 17, we're really good. Owner's like, okay, I got a little bit to play with. Maybe you should tweak this. We're getting a better understanding of the program. The end of the schematic, of the design development phase, phase two, we're at one nine. You added a little bit, we tweaked it, we had some playroom, but we're still under your two million. Everything's good, we're okay. I'm updating you on the increase in budget. At the end of this, of the construction document phase, and we started building in, we had to look at code, do everything else. We said to the owner, you know what? We're at two one. We think this bid's going to come in at two one. If the owner approves that, even though the original budget was one one or two two point you're okay because you communicated that to the owner. You actually, by that approval of the owner, and you told them it's going to be 2.1, you've adjusted and changed the initial information from Article 1. It's okay if you came in and said 2.1, if they say it's okay too. Now, if you come in and say it's 2.1, and the owner's like, ah, no, 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 2.0, 2.0, 2.0, we can't go over 2.0, then you got to go back and redesign. you got to cut some things out. you got to figure out how to make it 2.0. 
But it's a communication. It's an understanding. And, and so while certain, certain elements of the contract are required to stick with, again, you can change contracts as they move along. So. Go back, yeah. Mm-hmm. 6.3 is later in the contract. So we're in section 344. 6.3 is later in the contract. That's why when I had the, I had 6.3 up in blue. Remember that slide that had blue text? That was the exact language from 6.3. Because in each one of these phases, they always reference 6.3. So I wanted you to understand. 6.1 defines the term cost of the work. And 6.3 says, how do I create this, this estimate? So 6.3 is an actual methodology that the architect must employ to create the cost of the work, how they got to go through and do it. And so each time, it says you got to update the cost of the work in accordance with 6.3. 6.3 is the method by which you do that. Okay? Any other questions on this? Okay. So now, we've done with the design services. So, um... You had, you had your schematic phase, your design development phase, and your construction document phase. At that point in time, we can now go out to bid. And that's what's called procurement phase services. Procurement is getting the contractor or the, the supplier of whatever the thing that's going to be built. Like if, if you're designing um, in addition to uh, the building, like one of the things that's part of obviously this candy facility that we're going to be building is the production lines. So you're going to procure the production lines. And there's somebody that's designing that different than designing the corn shell. So they're going to design where the... And actually, Haribo does a lot of its own. They're very um, proprietary of how they make the gummy bears. So very secret. So, okay. So the architect shall assist the owner in establishing a list of pr pr prospective contractors. Here are the people that are interested in your building and design it, or to build it. So you're going to help out. And assist the owner in obtaining competitive bids or um, determining the successful bids. So this is the process. Uh, your traditional smaller project, you know, you want bids from at least three contractors. Um, but sometimes you go out to bid. I think we have 14 people in, in the, the Haribo facility that we're going out to bid for. 14 different contractors or 15 that are interested. So that's, that's what the architect, and our architect is helping us. We're in this phase right now. Or, Part, partly in this phase. They're still doing drawings too. So we have one type is called competitive bidding. I'm going to go through this really quickly. There will be nothing on the test on bidding. But you're going to have competitive bidding and you're going to assist them in um, distributing the bidding documents that's the plans, the specifications, any other information about the project. Um, you'll have a pre-bid conference. Everybody has to come in and ask questions about it. Uh, preparing responses if they have if they have written questions to this RFP is probably normally what happens in this process, and then um, the opening of the bids and who's going to win. In the competitive bidding process, most often it's going to be uh, as long as they have uh, satisfied the requirements of the program, meaning we can build this building and we are a licensed contractor. Then competitive building is when they open the bids. Low person wins. It's a. It's almost always price driven. Okay, pure competitive bid. Because the architect's already designed it here. 
you're going to build this exact building. Um, now, as an additional service, if, they, if during the bidding process the contractor says, well, we could do it this way, we could change this, the and the owner says, no, that's a good idea, never even thought about it, the architect can draw that up as an additional service. So this is another way of the architect, it's not in my basics, but I can have more. Um, so that's a provision of the contract to allow the architect to get paid for those services. Negotiated proposals is a second type of bidding process. In a negotiated proposal, you go out to bid, you come back in, but it's not I open the bid and which is the lowest price wins. Sometimes they call it um, a uh, best value method, the negotiated proposal, where it comes in and says, okay, they may have the number one price, but I don't like their team. They're giving me the B team of workers. Or... I'm building a hospital. They've only done medical office facilities. They're not experienced enough in a hospital. So they may be giving you the best price, again, but I don't want to go with them. So you can get into negotiations and you can look at more information than just the price. And then you get, and sometimes in a negotiated proposal, you shortlist down to two or three. They all fit the bid. They're all good designer or good contractors. I'm not quite sure, so I'm going to negotiate with all three of them at the same time. I'm going to try to figure out who's going to give me the best bang for the buck. So negotiated is a little bit more in-depth. Again, it's a service that the architect will provide. They're going to charge you for that, but that's something that, that the architect normally is involved in. Making sure that we negotiate properly, they know the industry better, those types of things. Um, and again, 3533, this is the exact same thing that was in 3523, which is if the, in that process of the negotiation, if there's more stuff that the contractor or the owner want to do, architect will do that as an additional service. Get paid for additional services for that. Any questions on bidding and negotiation? Yes. Oh yeah, all the time. Not all the time, but yes. Um, because the person... Oh, I'm sorry, wait. And you said competitive bidding? Oh, the answer traditionally is no. In competitive bidding, traditionally lowest bid wins. But it has to... There's, there's, a, there's the, what they call... So um, competitive negotiations, to negotiate a bid, it's called best value. In competitive bid, it's lowest responsible bidder. The, 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 the reason why it's not 100% is that term responsible. Sometimes you get in the lowest bid and then you do some investigation into the entity that's going to be design, building it and they don't qualify as being responsible. In fact, I had a project. I did not do the RFP. I was not responsible for everything. I was called in because I specialize in that area. And things were going south on the project before they started construction. It was a huge development, and I don't even know if it has gone forward with, but it was a big development in the city. Um, and it included uh, office buildings, there was some medical offices, there was going to be some small, not hospital-like, but small um, kind of uh, surgical suites. And then there was going to be residential, so it was a big plan unit development. A lot of different things were going to go into it. And the... Uh, 
the conglomerate. It was a design-build project. And the conglomerate that won the project, there was a provision in the agreement, or in the, in the RFP, the request for proposal. You know, give me your experience, tell me what project you worked on, give me your price, you know, all the stuff. And there was a section that said, we want your claims history. How many times have you been sued? Have you had problems? Have your buildings fallen down? Has anybody been injured on your project site? And they gave us some, there was some sketchy information, and so the owner entity brought us in and said, we were about to award, and we, we just, something's not right. So I did a very extensive background search, and there were claims that were not reported, including one of the principals was currently in a, and actually a very high, high profile principal, was currently in a sexual harassment lawsuit. And so the owner came back, and even though they had the lowest bid, this entity had the lowest bid, they withdrew any award that was going to be made saying you are not responsible because you have these other issues. The last thing they wanted is this high-profile project with a company that's been in the papers, that had claims, and they're one of their senior reps in the process of our sexual harassment lawsuit. Like, that just didn't fit right with their project. So they had the best price, but they didn't win. What we ended up actually advising them, though, was instead of awarding to the second place entity, which they could have, so there was language in the RFP that says, if there's any problems with the first one, we can award to the second one, and that's what they wanted to do. And I said, you can do that, and, and under the rules of your RFP, that's fine, but the likelihood of the lowest bidder filing a bid protest against you is pretty high. But my recommendation is issue an immediate re rejection of the entire RFP and then reissue it again and inform company A, call them up and tell them why you're doing this. And then they can submit, because part of the reason was not just because there was this loss of the, like this, Obviously, the sexual harassment lawsuit was a bigger deal, but part of the reason why they were, the, the owners were, were upset was because they didn't fully report everything. And so I said to the owners, I said, just cancel that whole RFP. You're allowed to do that. Start new. It's going to slow your schedule down by about three months because you've got to redo everything. And tell them they have to be forthright with everything in their submission. And then you can see if you want to make that decision of awarding. And when you award or not to them, it's better because you can say, I looked at everything, I didn't do this background check because you didn't do it. So they did that. I don't remember who they ended up awarding to or how it went from there uh, because there was a substantial price difference, but that was the cleanest way for the owner not to get sued as well. Um, so long answer, yes, sometimes the lowest bid lowest does not win, but it's less often. Okay, construction phase services. So we got... We got all the design done, we went out to bid, we've retained a contractor, now we're going forward, we have the construction start. That's construction phase service. That's the 3-6. The architect shall provide administration of the contract between the owner and the contractor as set forth below and in the H-201, which we'll talk about, you know, in about three or four weeks. Um, so the H-201 has this whole section, Article 4 in the H-201, says everything the architect does. Now, if you remember, I talked about uh, there's this, the triangle that we have. We have the owner on top, 
and the architect and the contractor and the two bottom pieces of the contract and there's solid lines between owner and contractor and between owner and architect. There's no line or maybe a dotted line between architect and contractor because they owe no contractual obligations to each other. But, as I said, the A201, part of that dotted line in the bottom, has language. Architect's going to be doing this, telling the contractor what the architect's going to be doing. And those provisions of what the architects are going to be doing comes out of this section here. Basically, it's saying, hey, contractor, architect has a contract with owner, and architect has to do all these things for the owner, and here's where it may impact you. That's in the A tool, and when we get there in a couple of weeks, I'll point it out to you again, but that's where it says. All right. So, administration of the contract. You are not going to be telling the contractor how to do its work. You are not directing the contractor to do anything. You are going to be observing and making sure that what they do build looks like what you drew. You don't have to do and make sure that they did the right loads. You don't have to see if they, their shop drawings were proper and do the math and everything else. They have that responsibility. But if the wall is supposed to go in one spot and it's in the wrong spot, then it doesn't look like what you designed. So you're doing, the administration of the contract is not the management of the construction contract. Does that make sense? It has to do with liabilities. And there's a provision coming up here, your get out of jail free card. It's one of the best provisions in the contract. Okay, and this is it. This is another one of these big, big provisions that you guys want to hold on to for the rest of your career. 3.6.1.2. The architect shall advise and consult the owner during the construction phase services. Hey, I'm telling you what's going on in the project. Here's what's happening. The architect shall have the authority to act on behalf of the owner, but only to the extent provided in this agreement. Remember we talked about agency and authority. This is actual authority actual and express authority, because it says, shall have the authority, but only as provided in this agreement. And in this, it'll say there's certain times architects shall do this on behalf of the owner. And it's express. The architect, however, shall not have control over, charge of, or responsibility for the construction means, methods, techniques, sequences, or procedures, or safety precautions or programs in connection with the work. Means, methods, techniques, sequences, and procedures is how you swing the hammer, how you tighten the bolt, how you lay the, the iron. You are not responsible for how that happens. If you see them doing it wrong, don't tell them, because once you start directing the contractor, you have now assumed responsibility of means, methods, materials. And that's that whole moral, ethical thing we talked about a couple of classes ago, but at the end of the day, this is your best protection in this contract. If there is a construction defect, you are not responsible for. If there is a safety violation, because it's not just means, methods, techniques, and procedures, it's also safety precautions. If there is a safety violation, you are not responsible for that. Now, we talked about, you know, if there's a hole in the elevator or there's a big hole in the ceiling and you haven't, there's no tape or barricades around it, what do you do? 
you know, you pull the project manager aside and say, go fix that, tell the owner. You don't put it in writing so you can, you can assuage your moral obligations. But contractually, this provision says, get out of jail free. Not my problem. I designed it, you built it. As long as my designs don't fall down, the way you built it fell down, not my problem. Someone gets hurt, not my problem. This is the provision I love to use when I'm in a lawsuit because the architect, if someone gets hurt, if the architect did its job, I wave this in front of the judge and say, my contract says I'm not responsible for safety, I'm out of the lawsuit. And it works. Now, as I said though, when these contract provisions are written, not, the AIA is not the only entity that's writing. Owners are writing it, so are contractors. So the contractor says, the architect shall be responsible for the architect's negligence and actual various omissions, but shall not have a choice. Maybe it's the next provision. Hold on. Okay, it's coming up. So this is just talking about, um, again, all this says is you don't, you're not responsible for yourself and everybody else. So there's a provision coming up that's kind of a clawback that where the contractor says. But um, you are responsible for your negligent act of emissions, but you're not control over, responsible for the emissions of the contractor or any other person. So you, you just take care of your own house. You're not responsible for methods and procedures, you're not responsible for safety, and you're not responsible for the acts of others. Just your own world. And that's what 3612 is. Subject section for two separate Oh, so this is just um, your responsibility under here uh, to provide construction based services begins with the award of contract and ends when they issue this final certificate of payment. So the last, so once the contractor starts working, that's when the construction phase starts. And once the contractor gets his final check, that's when construction phase ends, your, your administration services. There may be warranty work later on. There may be stuff that happens after the final payment has come. Architect doesn't have any responsibility to keep coming back to the site to making sure that the facility is working. So. Evaluation of the work. Architects should visit the sites at appropriate intervals for the stage of construction or otherwise required in section 423. And that tells how many times you have to go out a week or a month to become generally familiar with the progress and quality of the portion of the work completed. Generally familiar. You don't have to intimately know everything. If you're going out once a week, there's a lot of construction that may have happened when you're gone, when you're not there. If somebody is, if, if you're out there on Monday of this week and there's a bunch of, uh, of the, 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 the two by fours of the, of the houses up, are up, and they've drilled some holes, and you know that's where the plumbing's going to go in, um, and then you come out a week later, and that wall is now all enclosed by drywall because the plumbers come in and they drywall it and everything else, you can't see behind the walls. So if the plumbing has gone in correctly, it's not your job to figure it out because you only have to know what's reasonable and generally familiar during the progression. Now, there's, there's certain... Fail-safe's in place to make sure those, that doesn't happen and the, the city has to improve, approve inspections of electrical plumbing. But, but generally, it says you have to be generally familiar, not intimately, minutely familiar with that. Um, and then you have to, if the work observed is being performed in a manner indicating the work when fully completed will be in accordance with the contract documents. So 
you have to have a little foresight. Like I said, if the wall's here and your drawing space in another location two feet over, that's something you can see and, and you have a foresight that when the project is completed, it's not going to be as you design. So you, you have to understand how building takes place so you can say, hmm, what you're doing here may not be right when you're getting down the line. So there's a little bit of foreshadowing, but that's understanding of the project. Um, and the architect shall keep the owner reasonably informed about the progress and quality of the portion that was completed and promptly report to the owner no deviations from the contract documents. Hey, the wall's in the wrong spot. So I know it's wrong. I'm going to tell you, owner, that it's wrong. No deviations from the construction schedule. They were supposed to have the concrete poured and finished by January 15th. It's the 18th. They, have, they are late on their schedule. So you want to keep the owner informed of that. That's your job or defects and deficiencies observed in the work. Um, that's not how the bolt was tightened, but maybe where some things that it's not proper. So you have to tell them, you have to reasonably informed of that progress. One part here that I skipped over, but I wanted to come back, now that I talked about what you have to do, the architect shall not be required to make exhaustive or continuous on-site inspections. You don't have to be there every day. In fact, the parties will agree once a week, twice a month. Sometimes they'll say on-site project represent project architect. Sometimes it is has to be every day. But the base contract under your basic services say you do not have to have continuous and exhaustive on-site observation. And that comes into play when something goes wrong that you might have seen was are you performing in accordance with the standard of care? Well, the standard of care says I don't have to be there every day looking every minute and being everywhere. That's part of your standard. And so if you miss something, one of the questions will go to the jury is was it reasonable that they missed it? I had a, a, a big lawsuit. One of um, a very well-known architect here in Chicago, and they designed um, their they they did thousands upon thousands of residential units, both high-rise and uh, townhome and, and a condo complex. Um, and they did this townhome complex. Um, this is going back probably 10 years, 12 years ago. Uh, and the way they designed it was um, they were three stories, and they had, all had flat roofs. Traditional, you know, you see in Chicago, a flat roof. And so. The third floor ceiling inside of the third floor bedrooms and, and whatever else, these bathrooms on the third floor. And then there was the roof. And the space between those two, between the ceiling and the roof, was about two feet. Not an attic. They actually called it, I learned from this project, called an interstitial space. In this interstitial space, there were two trusses that held everything up. So you got the two walls to the house. The, the, the short walls and then the long walls and you had two trusses and that held everything up. My architect designed an open truss system. Air could flow through these spaces. And the roof, well, this is the other thing I learned, these flat roofs in Chicago, they actually have a very slight pitch. So over about a, I don't know if it was about a 50 or 60 foot um, run of the facility, it went up about four inches. So at one end they have these tiny two little vents very small, they were about four inches in diameter. And at the other end, at the high end, they were about 12 inches in diameter. And what that does is that creates a continual airflow because you have this very slight rise to allow air 
the hot air can go that way. And then there's just the small ventilations, the four, two vents on one side and two vents on the south and two vents on the north, creates this flow of air through the interstitial space. And when you have an open truss system, everything moves fine. It's all good. Project's built. There's multiple phases. They're in the last phase. And some of the owners move in. Mold everywhere. And there was one couple, they had a, 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 a boy that was, um, had highly allerg- lots of allergies and he was always at the hospital. That's where they started discovering it. Lots of mold. They came back and they started doing investigation. They hired an outside expert and the expert went in and they opened up the thing and there was mold all through the roofs. So they sued my architect. Your design caused this mold. My architect went out to the site once a month or if called, never was called. Between the time that they were constructing and doing the truss system and building the roofs to when my architect was there and then not there. And actually, I don't think it was once a month. I think it was actually once every three months or if called and they were out every 90 days. And that was because the owner was a developer and they build and they're like, we know what we're doing. We don't need you. We do this all the time. This is a big national residential builder. They wanted to save money. So instead of the open trusses, they went with large glue lamps. Do you guys know what a glue lamp is? For those who don't know, a glue lamp is they take a bunch of boards and they glue them together, they laminate it. And so instead of a truss system, your typical triangle truss system, they just glue, glue these boards together and they build it up to the same depth. And then it has the structural strength of a truss. It's a lot cheaper to use glue lamps than an open truss system. Open truss because you have to manufacture it and there's different woods and everything else. And they're probably a third of the price. And so what did they do? They installed two glue lamps into this, but they're solid. So now you have this interstitial space where air would flow through, and now you have three pockets. So no air was flowing through. Chicago, freeze-thaw, snow on the top, warm air inside, creates an atmospheric issue in here. You have condensation. There was three other deviations that they did. They actually did penetrations in the ceiling to put the down lights. So when you're in the summer and it's air conditioned, that cold air would go up in the attic, more in condensation. And they put, they put ventilation, they put the, the, the ductwork in the interstitial space. We had it designed in soffits in the um, regular body of it, but they wanted to have higher ceilings and more closet space. So they put all the ductwork up there. So you had uninsulated ductwork, you had penetrations to the ceiling, and you had these glue lamps that stopped the airflow. Mold. We didn't know any of this was going on because we weren't on the project site. We weren't making continuous exhaustive searches, and that was our defense. We said, yeah, we designed it, but we're not responsible for means and methods. You changed our design. You went from a truss to a glue lamp. You penetrated the ceilings. You didn't use insulated ductwork. You created a void or a a series of of compartments and chambers. So I use this provision to help my architect on liability issues because we did not do continuous and exhaustive searches. That's a real-world application of this provision of how you can get get out of jail for it. So, okay? Now, 3622. The architect has the authority to reject the work that does not conform to the contract documents. So if I don't see if it doesn't conform to what I designed, I can reject it. Architect has the authority. This is one of the times where it specifically states, I can act on behalf of the owner. I am acting as the owner's agent. 
It's not high design. I can reject it. I am the owner's voice for that. Owner understands that as well. They have the authority to require inspections and testing of the work. If I feel that something they're doing, maybe it's going to have a hazardous materials or something else, or maybe it's not structurally sound, maybe I look at the concrete pores and there's cracks in the concrete. Did they use the right mix of the concrete? I have the authority on behalf of the owner to require inspections. I'm acting as the owner's agent there. So that's where, and these are two places where I can tell the contractor, do this. Stop. Fix this or do this inspection. However, neither this authority of the architect nor a decision made in good faith either to exercise or not exercise authority shall give rise or duty or responsibility of the architect to the contractor. So I have the authority to tell the contractor to do an inspection, but it does not create any contract between me and the contractor. I'm acting on behalf of the owner when I'm exercising this authority. I am not creating any contract. So if I tell the contractor, stop, do an inspection, I think you have problems here. Dig up that because I think you did the foundations wrong. I want you to dig it up and show me it's right. If the contractor digs it up and it's done right, even though I as the architect told them to dig it up, because there's a cost to that, contractor can't sue me for that cost. Contractor can't say, look, I told you I did the foundations right, they're okay, you made me dig it up. Cost me 20 grand. Contractor can't sue the architect. Contractor has to go to the owner. So it doesn't create a contractual thing. It doesn't read that. So that's actually good for you too. You're speaking on behalf of the owner, you're directing on behalf of the owner, but you're not taking the responsibility. That doesn't create that here. Does that make sense? There are very few times when you have to exercise something like this. And there are very limited times the architect has authority on behalf of the owner. But this is a good one. But the AA recognized, I don't want to expose my architects. So I want to give them some protection. Owner has to carry this, lay, this weight. 3623, the architect shall interpret and decide matters concerning performance under required under the contract documents request to the owner contract. Oh, so if there's certain, what this is saying is if there's a certain requirement like um, that it must perform a certain way, uh, sometimes there's what's called a performance spec. A clean room has to operate at a certain air quality level. And the owner says to the contractor, build it this way, and the architect designed it and says you need to have 99.9% pure the architect, when the tests come back and they test that air, the architect can decide and interpret whether those tests qualify for that 99% pure, whether they've met that performance standard. So that's what 3623 means. 3624, interpretations of the architect are consistent with reasonably inferable from the contract document. So sometimes... As I've said before, your drawings won't be 100%. It's not going to have every single detail, every single nail hole, every single bolt, what's reasonably inferable. So your interpretation and what you see in the field and what's there, it's, it's everything's reasonable, what's reasonably interpreted from your drawing. Contractors know how to build. Architects know how to design. There's some stuff that everybody kind of knows. It's reasonable and they understand that. Um, 
And then the architect shall endeavor to secure faithful performance of both the owner and the contractor, and shall not show partiality to either. You're the neutral. You are wearing the white hat. Now, it's counterintuitive to a certain sense, because we just saw in a couple of provisions before, you're speaking on behalf of the owner. You can't be neutral there. But by and large, what the architect wants to do is say, I'm here to effectuate the design. I'm not here to promote necessarily the owner's agenda. I'm not here to promote the contractor's agenda. I want to kind of be neutral to both. That's what the contract says. Truth be told, you're always going to be on the owner's side because they're paying you. It's your design, it's their thing. And that's okay. Everybody understands that. But this is trying to keep you neutral here in 3624. 3625, this is what's called this, this concept called initial decision maker. So let's say that there's a problem in a claim. There's a architect, contractor says something's wrong with the design, or maybe there's a soils issue or whatever, but the contractor has a claim for more money. Architect is the initial decision maker, is the entity that first makes the decision about it, initial decision maker, pretty simple. Before you go to a mediator, before you go to an arbitrator, you want to work it out internally between the parties. And the architect has to wear that hat, that kind of first line of deciding what's right or what's wrong, what do the drawings say, what not. Now, there's a conflict of interest there because sometimes the contractor is going to be criticizing your drawings. So you're going to be like, oh, my drawings are fine. Maybe they're not, but at least you're the first one that's going to look at it. Certificates of payment. So one of the other things you have to do during the construction um, administration phase is you're the one that uh, is looking at the pay applications. They come in, you're going to say, contractor says, I've done this amount of work, you owe me this money. I've done 30% of excavation. My contract was for $90,000. Give me $30,000. Or it was $100,000. Give me $30,000. Because I say I'm 30% done. Architect's going to look at it and going to say, you have two holes, Doug. You're 10% at most. I'm not going to approve 30. I'm going to approve 10. So you have the responsibility to make sure that everybody's being proper in their payment applications. But it's to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief. It can't be 100%. You, you don't know. Maybe they paid a, maybe they've already paid 10 grand to the concrete supplier. Maybe there's, who knows what's going on behind the scenes. So, it's just to your best knowledge, information, and belief. Architects aren't perfect. That's what this is saying. Um, and your representations, your statements as to the payment application are subject to an evaluation of the work for conformance to the contract documents, meaning I've walked around and made sure it's conformance to that. Results of tests and inspections. And then the correction of minor deviations from the contract documents prior to completion and specific qualifications expressed by the architect. So, um, if the architect certifies this, then these representations come in. Certified payment. Okay? This is another good provision for you, 3632. The issuance of certificate of payment shall not be a representation the architect has made an exhaustive or continuous on-site inspection of quality or quantity of the work. They have not reviewed the means methods. They have not reviewed the pay requests received from subcontractors. And they have not ascertained for what purpose the contractors used the sums, used the sums that have been paid. 
So when you get that pay app as the architect, you're going to walk around the project site and you're going to say, this percentage, this percentage, this percentage. Check, check, no, I don't agree with that, check. And that's what you're doing. Yes, they're 30% done with foundations. They're 8% into to carpentry. You know, they've delivered a couple of pieces of equipment. The mechanics are on site. We can pay them for that. You're not going to look to see did they already pay the subcontractor for that. And you're not warranting that. You're not going to say, well, they're 30% done with concrete, but some stuff I may have missed because I wasn't there on site. So this is, again, kind of a, even though I'm telling the owner that the contractor's owed a million dollars in this pay application, it's not a verification that everything in that pay application is 100% correct. You have exclusions as to why you aren't perfect. That's what 36232 says. I will do the best I can. I'm going to approve and certify this payment. If it turns out there's some funny business in there and I couldn't know, it's okay, or at least it's okay for the architect. It's not okay for the owner of the contractor, but you're not responsible for that. All right? Submittals. So during the course of the project, when you're building a project, there's going to be things we'll call submittals. Let's say you designed um, uh, a, a brick house and you want, to, you, you want to make sure the brick, you know, because when they make brick, if it's not baked properly or the colors or whatever else, it's going to submit the bricks. You have to look at them and inspect them. Um, submittals could be shop drawings. You know, you want to see, you, you design a column and beam system, but if the structural, it's the fabricator and the structural, the, the um, steel supplier, that's going to do the actual shop drawings, how those bolts are going to go and the, how deep the flanges are and those types of things for the beams. That's a submittal. There are, during the course of the project, even though you've done design, other people are going to be submitting to you pieces for review. So the submittal process is something you are a part of and talk about it. You review, the architect reviews submittals to make sure they conform with the drawings, but they don't do the math, so to speak. So, our fixed action review submittal shall be taken in accordance with the proof submittal schedule. So, there's a schedule when you get all this stuff. Or in the absence of the schedule, within reasonable process while allowing sufficient time for the architect's professional judgment to permit adequate review. So, you're going to get submittals for the concrete for foundations when they dig the hole long before you're going to get submittals for the kitchen tile in the cabinets. That's going to be much later. So the schedule that happens. If you don't actually have a written schedule, what's reasonable? If you get a submittal for a concrete, you want to review it, you shouldn't take three weeks to bless the concrete mix. Turn it around in three or four days, whatever that might be. And there's some industry standards. Traditionally, submittals are turned around in anywhere between five and ten days. If you can get 15 days for an architect, that's good. But that's to keep the schedule moving along. So... So if it, if it doesn't say, it's just what's reasonable between the parties. The architect shall review and approve or take other appropriate action upon things such as shop drawings, product data, and, sem and samples. But for the limited purposes of checking conformance with the information in the design concepts expressed. What this says is, yes, it looks like what I drew. 
but I am not going to redo the shot drawing math. If they did calculations that um, this column has to sit on a pad and it has to be bolted into the pad, if they did calculations that says it needs five bolts in these locations and it looks like what I think should be there, I can approve that. I am not going to do the math that the shop drawing guy should have done, the, engine, the, 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 the subcontractor that's going to stall that column, on whether it should have been five or four bolts, or whether they should have been four inches or six inches, or whether the locations of those bolts are proper. That's their job. I'm going to review and approve that, yes, those columns were in the right spot, they look like they should be bolted down onto that pad, and that's what is reasonable and what might be wrong, the design intent or the design concept, but I'm not going to be obligated to do their math. There was a big project, um, the uh, post office building, the, the new one, well, it's not that new anymore, but the one that, that, that was built, there was a huge um, accident. I think a number of people died. And it came down to shop drawings. And they sued the architect. And it was, a, it was a mess. The whole thing was a mess because of its collapse. And they sued the architect. And one of the things they said with the architect, the architect should have known that these drawings weren't proper. And they used this provision to get out because they said, I reviewed the shop drawings, but it was an engineering failure by the subcontractor in preparing the shop drawings. They collapsed because they engineered it wrong. That wasn't the architect's responsibility. That was the subcontractor that was doing the shop drawing responsibility. So that's, this is an important provision for things like that. You review and approve, but you don't do the double checking of the map. Now, the architecture review shall not constitute, and this is what it's also, it's not constitute approval of safety precautions or construction of means, method, techniques, or sequence. So again, you are not responsible for how they tighten that bolt, where that bolt goes, whether the bolt is long enough. You're just reviewing and approving it so that it's within the design concept. Any questions on that? 3643. Um, oh, so this is sometimes the contractor actually has to bring in their own design professional. Perfect example, fire protection systems. Architect's going to specify, we want to have a wet system or a dry system. And they're going to say, you've got to make it this fire protection system to code. That's all the architect's going to do. The architect will not design where the pipes are going to go. The architect's not going to design the size of the sprinkler head. The architect's not going to design the control board. Somebody has to design that. Somebody has to come in and look at the square foot of the building and look at the heights and everything else that will cause the fire protection system to trigger. That's a fire protection company. That's going to be hired by the contractor. But they use their own design professionals, their own engineers, and they have to conform to the standard of care. So, contract actions that they specifically require the contract to provide professional design services and certification related to that. The architect shall review the appropriate shop drawings and other submissions um, provided the submissions, but they and they are entitled to rely on them. So they're going to the architect will review them as part of a submission, and they're relied they're entitled the architect is entitled to rely on that this fire protection company has their own engineers, and I need to trust them to make sure the engineering was done properly. Curtain wall is another area where going, the contractor has to hire the engineer. Um, if you're doing excavations and you have to do shoring and bracing so that the next door neighbors, their, their building doesn't settle because you dug a hole right near there, 
That's another thing that the contractor has to hire for engineers. This basically says, I'll look at it as the architect, but I, don't, I can rely on them to say it there, that they've done the math. Three six four four. The architectural review respond to a request for information that's sometimes called an RFI. Sometimes the contractor is going to say, "I can't really see what your drawings mean here. They're, they're not clear enough. Can you give me more details?" Here's an RFI, request for information. So three six four four just says you're going to respond to those RFIs. It's different than a submittal. Submittal is send me your bricks so I can make sure it's the right color and the right composition. An RFI says. I'm not sure if you want to use um, this type of coursing or this type of coursing because I can't tell it on the drawings. It's a clarification more than submit it to me so I can approve that piece of material or something. Um, and again, the architect's response will be made within made in writing within time limits agreed upon or otherwise reasonable. So there's a standard of how long it takes to respond to an RFI. Three to five days is not uncommon just to keep the project moving along. 365, changes in the work. So we're working along projects. Well, every project is going to have a change order. Some things are going to be different because you can't design 100%. Something in the field changes. Maybe the owner changes and stuff. So this says the architect may order minor changes in the work that are consistent with the intent of the contract documents. So they're allowed, actually. The architect out in the field says, you know, I know we were going to use light gray. We can use dark gray here in this color when we're painting it out. That's a minor change in the work. Um, as long as they do not involve an adjustment of the contract sum or extension of the time. So the architect can change a little bit as the project goes along as long as there's not an impact to time or money. And they have the authority to do that. They don't have to necessarily go back to the owner. It's not going to cost them anymore. It's got to stay within the design concept. It's not going to make the schedule go any longer. The architect should also prepare what's called change orders and construction change directives. So there's field, that's the first one, the minor changes, those are field directives. Um, change orders is an actual physical change or to time schedule the project. You write that up. And a constructive change directive is where I tell the contractor, do this differently. It's going to cause, change orders and construction change directives both can impact time or money. So it's going to cause an impact in money, but the parties can't agree to it. Contractor says, you want me to do that change? That's 50 grand. Architect's like, no way. That's 10. You can't be charging me 50,000. The owner's not going to pay 50. I'm not going to approve 50. But you still have to do it because if you don't do it, the project schedule is going to slow down. So I'm giving you a constructive change directive, our contractor, do the work, and then we'll figure out how much it costs later. Then it comes in at 30. See, I told you it wasn't 50. I'm not going to approve it. Change order is you've already approved the price or the schedule. Project completion. At the end of the project, the architect's going to conduct inspections. They're going to issue certificate of substantial completion. That toy factory is online. And then forward to the owner for the owner's review, any related documents received for the contractor. Here is the operating manual for your air conditioner. Here's how you run your plumbing system. Here's um, the, the warranties on your roof. Those are the, the documentation that you want. And then you're going to issue a certificate of final payment. We've done everything. The project's done. Here's all the project information. Here's your final certificate, the last check that goes to the contractor. That's the last what the architect does for project completion.
3662, um, that should be structured with... Okay, just as the 3662 just basically says is that um, if there's going to be some type of list that's submitted, maybe it's going to be a punch list or whatever, the work and all the requirements to finish out, the architect's going to take a look at it and verify that everything has been done properly. It's accurate. Um, and then 3663, when substantial completion has been achieved, um, then the, the architect shall inform the owner about the balance of the contract sum remaining, how much is left to be paid. Substantial completion doesn't mean everything's done. There's a punch list that often comes after substantial completion. So they go to the owner and they say, okay, we got a bunch of money that you haven't paid the contractor. We're substantially complete. You got a million dollars that you still owe this contractor. We're substantially complete. They've created a punch list. The punch list is worth $200,000 worth of work. We can release maybe half a million. We can give them some of the money. We want to keep a little bit more, more than what they owe to finish, just to keep them honest. But that's what this process is, 3663. Just doing the kind of final accounting at the end of the project. Um, 3664. Oh, so 3665, this is the provision that basically says, because most warranties are for a year, so 3665 here says, before that one year is up, from the date of substantial completion to one year later, architect's going to come back out to the project site and walk one more time around. Are there cracks in the ceiling? Is anything falling? Is it leaking? I'm going to do one last look-see to make sure everything's okay. That's 3665. Any questions on all of Article 3 of the Big Face Services? There's a lot, I know. All right, additional services. We're going to crank through this, and then I think we should be finished for this. We'll see how long this takes. So as I remember, so they're talking about, they call it, this article is called Additional Service, but it's actually Additional and Supplemental Services. And here's the best way to think about it. Our basic services include electrical, mechanical, and um, structural. Supplemental services are anything that the architect does that's in addition to electrical, mechanical, and structural. Additional services, which is different than supplemental, is I was going to have a three-bedroom, two-bath house now I want you to design me a three-bedroom, three-bath house. So the additional services is to figure out how that third bathroom gets in there. Well, the bathroom has structural, electrical, and mechanical. But because it's a additional bathroom, that would be you can charge them for additional services. So it's, when you're doing additional services, you're doing the actions of basic services but it's in addition to what the original program is. Supplemental is, you want me to do lead. That's not electrical, mechanical, or structural. That's something different. You want me to do site design. That's not electrical, mechanical, or structural. That's a supplemental service. So that's the difference between supplemental and additional. Okay, so Article 4.1, the services listed below are not included in the basic services, but may be required for the project. And then there's this huge chart. I don't have the chart in the slide, but it's got this, it's got like, 50 things, all this stuff, you know, lead services, site design, additional uh, pre-construction issues, lots of things you do. And every one of those is outside of basic. Those are all supplemental services. Each one is a potential chargeable uh, service that you can get for. So that's what three, Article 4.1 says.
412, um, it talks about the descriptions and the architect's responsibilities. And then you have a description of the owner's responsibility. So this is where you pick from that laundry list, that checklist of various ones, and you decide, okay, I want to do lead, I want to do site design, I want to do some civil engineering, I want to do whatever else. And then you describe what the various responsibilities are. That's 4121 and 4122. Um, and then also 413, if there's a sustainable objective, then that's something else that would fall under supplemental services. So just a roadmap of how those, who's going to do what and how much you're going to charge for those. 4.2, additional services. So additional services are provided in accordance with the section shall entitle the architect to compensation pursuant to section 11.3, which is the payment section an appropriate adjustment in the schedule. So if additional services, as I said, you may be providing the same stuff of the basic services, but it's in addition to what we originally thought the program was going to be. So all this says is, if you want me to do additional, if you want me to add that third bathroom, that's fine, I'll do it. You're going to pay me pursuant to what Section 11.3 says, and that's probably going to be an hourly rate schedule. Um, there may be some other information in there. Let's just say... C11.3 to figure out how much it's going to cost me. Um, and a point, once you, when you know that you're going to have to do additional services, the architect shall notify within reasonable promptness and explain the facts and circumstances giving rise to the need. So when the, sometimes the owner will ask you to do something and not know that it's not in the basic services. You know, whatever it is. And it's up to the architect to tell the owner, I'll do it, it's an additional service. I'll go ahead and design that for you, but it's an additional service. So, what are those that require this authorization? It's necessitated, necessitated by a change in additional information, previous instructions or approvals given by the owner, or material change in the project, including size, quantity, blah, blah. Architect, the contractor owner says, well, we're going to do traditional design, bid, build, now I want it fast-tracked. That's an additional service, so we're going to charge you more. I'm going to give you, because it's been a change in initial information. Three-bedroom, two-bath house to a three-bedroom, three-bath house. Change in the initial information. So I'm going to notify you that. Um, change in the codes. There's a code. i got to redesign. What happened was, is when you hired me, the code said the fire code was X. Well, the government changed. I have to comply with the fire code. So I, I, I charge you for the design fire code A, now there's fire code B, I have to redesign, that's an additional service. It falls under my normal basic services, but it's in addition because I didn't know about the change. I'm going to notify you of that and you get paid additional services for that, additional money. Um, change or something where there's contrary to specific interpretations to the applicable authorities or contrary to requirements of additional instruments and services. So if there was um, a need to change what the drawings were, and this also has to do with codes and laws. So if there's a change in the code, so this is similar to the, the previous one, you get paid for that. If you have to change your additional your instruments of service to redesign, that's, a, that's an additional services. Um, services necessitated by the owner because the decisions not because the decisions of the owner are not rendered in a timely manner. If the owner's delayed on giving you responses to submittals, and they finally do it, and you have to accelerate to keep on schedule so the project stays on schedule, and you have to put three draftsmen on it instead of two, 
That's an additional service. You get additional payment for that. Now, all these things you've got to notify, but this is legitimate. You can go back to the owner and say, hey, 421.4, I had to put more people on because of your delays, pay me more money. Digital models, um, alternate bid proposals in .5 and .6. You want me to have more bid proposals? Additional service. Um, seven is if you have to go to public meetings that maybe not were originally thought about, attending those. Point eight, um, attendance of dispute resolution proceedings. Maybe there's some problems down the line and you have to testify at a mediation or whatever. Um, uh, nine, evaluations of the uh, quantities, qualifications of entities. So maybe you have to, not only are you helping with the bids, but you, you have to do like the project that I was telling you about where we actually had to do background searches of people. That's an additional service that you're going to pay for. Ten, replacement of work resulting for fire or other cause. So maybe during the course of the project, something that actually, you know, the, the project got struck by lightning, there was a fire. Now you've got to redesign, you've got to fix that. So that's additional service. It's, it's, it's still electrical, structural, mechanical work, but it's an additional service. And then in this assistance to the initial decision maker, it's not the architect. If somebody else is coming in and making some decision, but you have to weigh in as the architect, um, you get paid for that as well. Okay, then fortune two um, is sometimes this is the void delay in the construction phase. So uh, the other one's more design related. This is in the construction. So during the course of construction, if some of these happen, again, you give notice to the owner and you get additional services. You got to review the sequence submittals out of sequence. If the contractor gives you sequence submittals, either they're late or they're early and they're not in the normal course, you can get additional services for that. Um, two, responding to RFIs that are not prepared in accordance with the contract documents. So sometimes they're overly excessive or they're not doing it. The contractor's not following the rules and you have to step out of that. Architect gets paid. Three, change orders or construction change directives that require contractor's proposals. So if it's a more detailed thing where you have to go out to bid, so it's a change order and there's a lot of bid process, you get paid for that. Um, Evaluating claims, excessive number of claims is four. Evaluating substitutions, let's say that they say, I don't want to use this brick, I want to use that brick, so other things. These are all processes that happen during the course of the construction that is not in your basic services. Every single time you have to do one of these things, tell the owner, and you can build them for extra time. 423, this is a fill in the blank of when you, of what you're, how many times you're going to be on site and what you're going to be doing. I'm only going to be reviewing the shop drawings in 4231 twice. Give me a shop drawing and review it. I reject it. I send it back. I review it again. If I reject it a, third, a second time, it has to be come to a third time. I get paid for that. I'm only going to review it twice. I'm going to visit the site once a week, twice a month. That's in two. Um, I'm going to only inspect it in certain portions of time. That's in three. And then finally, for final completion, I'm only going to inspect things once for the punch list. I'm going to do one walkthrough for the punch list, or two walkthroughs, or whatever he's agreed on. So these are all something that the parties agree on. They've, once you go over the numbers in here, then it's an additional service. Okay? We're not going to do any, by the way, there's no math questions or anything on the exam. So any of this dollars and stuff like that, this is just more for familiarity. Um... Uh, the construction trade service for the 
Oh, so this basically says is that if there's more than six days after substantial completion of the work, or the initial substantial completion, then you're done um, on 424. Or, I'm sorry, if you have to do work after those period of time, additional service. So we're at substantial completion. It's 60 days later, the owner calls you up and says, will you do this punch list? Um, you can say, yes, I'll come back and read watch the punch list, but it's been 60 days. I'm going to charge you for this additional punch list work, even though you thought it was basic services, because it's so much later than what I had thought in my plan. I get to charge for that. And the reason why is because when you're scheduling your workers, you're going to say, okay, the project's supposed to be substantially complete September 1st. It's going to take a month for punching it out, so I've got to keep my people on that project team, the A team, through the end of September. I can start putting them on new projects in October and November. But if the owner calls you back in December and says, will you walk my project site again? You have to pull that person off of the other project, bring them back, so you want to be able to get paid for that. That's what that's for. And last one, and then we'll be done. Um, and if they're not, if the, any of the services, any of the services are not done within a certain period of time, then the architect's services beyond that time shall be compensated by additional services. So for this, where this comes into play is, I bid for you, I'm going to do your designs for $100,000. And I know that the time for design work and construction and everything else is a 24-month period on the outside, no matter what. I do the designs for you, and part of my basic services is I'm going to do construction administration. I mean, I'm going to walk the site, do the designs. The owner gets the new the house, his house designs, and sits on them, and because they're financially they're not ready. And then two years later, they finally say, "Okay, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get a contractor and we're going to build it." And you say to the owner, you say, well, the last 25 grand you haven't paid me was what I was going to charge you for my construction administration phase. But in here, you filled out 24 months. Well, we're 32 months after when I was doing this project. If you want me to come in, I'm not going to do the CA phase for 25 grand. I'm going to do it on an hourly basis because I'm allowed to it. Compensated because it's additional services. It's gone stale. I can't and the, the purpose of this is to say, I can't hold and freeze my prices for three years. If I bid you and figured out how much this project was going to cost in 2019, it's based on rates that are going to be 2019 and 2020. If you call me in 2020-23, or 2000, yeah, 2023, my rates have gone up. I shouldn't have to be stuck to what I bid you in 2019 for 2023. So that, this is the protection to the, to the architect, that they... They don't get undercut for bidding. All right? That's it. We will see you next week and finish up. I know there's a lot more provisions to finish, but trust me, I get through 5 through 13 much quicker. Because the big guts of this is, is Article 3 that we went through. Thanks, guys. Have a nice weekend.